him. He goes, this is it. Ned, big smile, Dusty. Just relax and have fun with it. Just gonna have fun with it. let's do it then let's do it before i do even a welcome let me say um just sort of as part of our preamble we've had a another email from a fan sonny oh. black in san diego connery fan who just stopped by to say hello with a little x at the end there as well so thank you for stopping by sonny very very kind thank of you, you sonny that's lovely uh, enjoy the sunshine bloody freezing here so that's lovely <laughs> how nice well keep it up yeah. so jimbo with uh with else ado shall we shall we jump to i was gonna mention that um i've been watching squid game i'm like maybe two years a year and a half behind the curve on this one uh, everyone went nuts when it came out i was like it's on my list and it has been it took a while but got to it eventually very much enjoying it got one episode left so actually, therefore, I won't mention anything else with you, Jimmy, and I'll save the time now to only mention that I'm not going to mention it. That in itself is a colossal waste of everyone's time. <laughs> and then I'll, when I finish Squid Game, we can have a little quick debrief. Okay. I mean, that feels like saving it for a bubble. I'll probably need to just kind of re-engage with it all. because I mean, I just want five minutes to be like blah, blah, blah. And then maybe jog your memory with stuff. It doesn't have to be in there. It can just be a banter warm-up for another time. But this banter warm-up has just been talking about avoiding the other banter warm-up. So I'm suitably warmed up, I think. My banter <laughs> is on. <laughs> All right. Well, look, let me then say, for the public record, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. <laughs> we are the what if podcast for movie sequels and prequels unprompted for the first ever time Sheppy. i'm feeling <laughs> a huge surge of pride right now i might have to retire and that was clean as well that was smooth it was good that was it that's the peak it's all downhill from now we're balancing a top and then we're just tilting over and the horizon's just going whoop, and you're like, oh no. And then your whole landscape is the ground beneath and down we go. So this has been a, a pleasure to be at this pinnacle, Jimmy, because that, that's good stuff. I, I love like that you it. didn't even give me a few weeks wobbling there, Sheppy, of just like ground sky, ground sky. No, we just went straight <laughs> well, over. No, the descent has already begun, <laughs> which is the name of your third autobiography. Um. Okay, man, well, I'll get straight to it because I set us a very beloved text with which to build upon, uh, which was the uh, the three amigos, Sheppy. The three amigos. Yes, yes, Jimmy. Uh, you set the three amigos, which was wonderful. It's our second Landis. I believe it's our second Martin. And I believe it's our second Chase after Vacation and Dirty Water Scoundrels. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice. So, so that's nice. And let me just say, writing, you know, daring to stand on the shoulders and write oh. and hearing Steve Martin's voice is, is a joy. So yeah, it was lovely that you chose this. And this is also good because it is a 
bit of an us film. I think you and I watched this film together for the first time. Is that safe to say? I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, gotta make it, gotta make it. That became a big thing for a while. That was that was said. That exasperated mothers in at least two households. So yes. Has um Three Amigos stayed with you since oh, that momentous yeah. occasion when we were what I'm assuming about eleven or twelve, something like yeah. that. I, I reckon I've seen it a good ten times and for lots of chortles and um during during my early twenties, I had had a big Chevy revival in my heart, and kind of just really went deep into a lot of the Chevy texts and tried to find little throwaway Chevy moments, and even discovered one on rewatch this time, which I'll share with you in a minute. But um, and uh, and yeah, just and I think the two biggest things that I think about the most are I mean, gonna make it is there actually probably top three, but the other two are. Um, and just the, the My Little Buttercup is just yeah. one of the more profound, hilarious moments. And just typically the thing to reference if you say to someone, have you seen Three Amigos? And just that scene, just the yeah. wonderful thing to wallow in. You really get to wallow in the gag with that scene. And, um, and then the other <laughs> thing is just the, the big speech of, you know, this <laughs> this town must face its own El Guapo, which also happens to be <laughs> the real El Guapo. <laughs> all of that stuff. And whenever I'm facing a big problem, I can sort of say to myself, well, at least it's not the real El Guapo, even though I'm facing well, the El Guapo. <laughs> I think that's always helpful. <laughs> yes, no, that's amazing. And it's safe to say that the whole Chevy, of, you know what it seems to me, in terms of Chevy, and we're talking peak gold standard golden era 80s Chevy, top of his game. I, I assume I've heard, I, I, I think, massive cunt. But, you know, Fletch, Vacation, um, just those two. But then you've got Caddyshack, just at the tail end of the 70s coming in. And then you've got Three Amigos and Spice Like Us. Uh, not to mention, you know, I'll take Fletch lives, fuck it, and, and so forth. So what I like is, though, Three Amigos specifically, it is peak, peak, peak chase. And he's just pure Chevy in it. He's not going against type. He's playing that sort of, you know, it's always some sort of buffoon, but what level it's turned down to, it's like, how stupid is he? In like, how ridiculously stupid. And so in terms of, let's say, we've got like Fletch being very clever, and then Clark, who's, you know, not an idiot, but he, he makes stupid decisions and so on. So you've got Clark, then you've got Emmett Fitzhume from spies like us and then you've got dusty bottoms who is like the most chevy if you like without being insulting the most stupid and that's that's great that it just exists and that those films i've just said exist in that we've got all these chevys at the peak chevy we're really lucky and yeah. who knows what happened in the 90s in an alternative universe but we've got 80s chevy and it's really nice and it's just nice that he's there gets top billing and he absolutely doesn't deserve to have top billing. It's really all about Steve Martin. Steve Martin wrote the fucking thing, which I always forget. And it's pure and it's nice. And it's like Landis also came in as a kind of a gun for hire. Like he wasn't, you know, the script I found out had been around for ages since like the early eighties at least. And um, lots of different variations and directors. Spielberg was apparently swimming around it before he did E.T. apparently. Um, and all sorts. Belushi was going to be in it. He's always Martin, with like maybe Aquarian Belushi, 
maybe Bill Murray, for example. Yeah, different different iterations. This is all, you know, just off the internet, so who knows? But that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad it. So he came in with Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live, and Steve Martin, and sort of came in through it that way and puts his own stamp on it. But it's just interesting that he he did that, which is nice. Uh, I, that I mean, I. I... All the different iterations of Amigos, you could shuffle them all in, and I, I, I'm really happy with the three we get in terms of the actors. Really happy, you know. When, when I was a kid, one observation I wanted to give you as well, just to see, I don't know why this is very. I'm still trying to sort of process this, but um, one observation I had um, was uh, just for myself around Martin Short, like. He was always my least favourite amigo in the movie, and I found him a wee bit annoying as a kid. <laughs> and um, and then just generally with Martin Short, I've just sort of I've I enjoyed Inner Space. We obviously mm. have a whole thing around the three fugitives, four fugitives to follow one day. And <laughs> I just so we you know he's there. He's not someone I'd even consider. I'd never go and see one of his movies, quite literally, <laughs> if it was, you know, um, as a as a big deal, you know. And um, I think, uh, but then he's sort of you. You talk a lot about regenerations and whatnot, but for me, he's one of the more extraordinary ones because now he's he's sort of ubiquitous with old Steve Martin, and he's kind of everywhere, and he's just. He's really the comedian's comedian. Everyone loves him, and he kind of pops up in all these chat shows and whatnot. And he's he's got literally all the quips, like all of the really good barbed quips to insult people in a funny way. He just has the encyclopedia, and he's really fun. And and I think in America he had some really iconic characters, like you know, like faux interviewing people and whatnot, like you know. Huge career that maybe the Brits have not really been exposed to as much. Do you know what I mean? Making his edgier stuff. Yeah, but I haven't really been exposed to it too much. So right. he's never sort of been as much on my radar, Marty Short. So that's a really long-winded way, Shepard is saying. He's the one that if I had to gun to the head, not that I want to, but if I had <laughs> to switch out, you could go with a Moranis or someone, couldn't you? Like in that well, long. Oh, piece. I heard, I, I absolutely read. Um, that Moranis was the second choice. It, Landis, it, Landis was like, if it's not Marty Short, we'll go with Moranis. But I always thought it could easily have been, say, an Aykroyd, but it is the third character. There's no doubt about it. And so I could imagine why Aykroyd wouldn't want to be that third character. And I like they went made him younger just because, well, it's Martin Short, and so he had to be younger. But that changes the dynamic in a nice way. And the older two are kind of like taking them under their wing and that sort of yeah, thing. And they've, so they've been through it a bit more. And they're always giving each other little looks and stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, they, they've got more of a shorthand. They've, they're like Fozzie and Kermit, and they've known each other the longest. Um, yeah. and, and, that, and he's like, um, I guess, Scooter. Well, that's not that bad. But like, Gogs or something. Um, so, so that's nice. Yeah, I, I like that. I like and I, I, he's always been my least favorite amigo, but that's just like obviously because it's like, well, it's it's Martin and Chase, so of course he yeah. is. It's always you know, it's impossible not to be. Maybe if it was Jack Nicholson, then maybe <laughs> then you know, then maybe Martin would be in trouble. But <laughs> as it is, Martin Short, I have always really liked in the three amigos. Like <laughs> <laughs> and I like that. And he's great. Young man, you have got it. I bet that's improvised. <laughs> uh, wonderful. 
you know what Sheffield as well like so just a tidy behind the curtain shoulders of giants so I was just uh, polishing my pitch on uh, on the <laughs> of a mount. I'm glad you left the camera off. Hello. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I was just I was on a plane yesterday polishing my pitch, and um, and of course was not able to have the lappy open um during takeoff and landing. So actually did a tiny bit of homework uh, on our little self um smartless podcast. We've been um, exchanging notes on Sheppy, mm. and I I listened to the Marty Short one. And um, wow. and I'm sorry to spoil your future chuckle at this, but I just wanted to share it with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay, so yeah. apt. It's so apt. Like he basically um talks about he'd never met Steve Martin before. He uh, basically was sent the script to Three Amigos. He goes to Steve Martin's house, and um and he he's looking around the house, and there's just like Picassos and stuff on the wall, loads of art. He just said it was extraordinary the volume of art on Steve Martin's wall, and he said he was really nervous, but he had the balls to say to Steve Martin, Steve, um, you know how how did you get this rich? You know because uh, I've seen your work. <laughs> <laughs> It laughed apparently and just had it in the script to went, I want you to give this to Martin Short. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's really cute. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just sweet, isn't it? They obviously had it from the off. You know their little dynamic. Yeah. Well, that's great. I haven't seen Murders in the Building. Have you seen? Yeah, I've seen season one. It's fun. It's fun. Yes. It's, it's just definitely... very sweet. Yeah. It's, it's on the list. Yeah, the recapture Martin particularly is capturing again a little bit of what we love about him. A little bit. Nice. Well, yeah. like you, I haven't seen him in that much, but he pops up in stuff, and I'm sure he was in Curb or something. And I have always liked him, and I did see the live thing, I guess, on Netflix of him and Martin doing their recent-ish stay like five years ago or something, and that's nice. Yeah. yeah, and if you go on YouTube, you can find when all three of them were on Saturday Night Live. Like maybe it was four amigos, or maybe it was even like in the nineties or something. But they're all there, and it's nice. And Martin does this massive monologue. I think it is the eighties, and the camera just follows him like off the stage and through the audience, and then around the back of the studio, wow. all pure one shot, tasty. Because why not? It's fucking live. And then like, yeah, of course it's one shot. So and then he and he goes right around and then back into the studio, and Chase and Martin short are there playing chess because. The joke being that Steve Martin was away for so long, and he comes in and finishes his big witty monologue, and it goes into the next sketch. And it's on YouTube. I mean, I saw it on YouTube a few years ago, but I assume it's still there. Oh, so that amazing. that's nice as well. That's a treasure trove. Good old YouTube, man. Wow, I can't yeah, wait. Yeah, that's going to be today. I'm going to have a look at that. I'll see if I can nice. find it. Put it on the old page. Shoulders put. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I should say just quickly about this because. Um, in terms of going back to the film for a sec, my own experience was very much like yours. I saw it with you and it never really went away and Chase and Martin and, and also Short and everything was really tasty. And I, yeah, and I guess in the end, I end up seeing it about every five years or something. And it's really nice, actually. I, I rewatched it. I, I don't think it really changed anything in, in my pitch, but I rewatched it anyway. It was the first time I'd seen it with Marta, which is nice to still, after all the volume of stuff that we watched, you know, still having like real gold standard top 1% stuff, you know, in the magazine. So that was a joy. 
and, and again, so enjoyable. For me, in terms of all of this sort of thing, it's really between Spies Like Us and Three Amigos in terms of like, it's always basically 50-50 and I can never, it's whichever one I've just seen becomes my favorite, but it's so much on a knife edge and I love them both so much. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. And I love this. And again, like I say, it's Landis and it's just so cinematic and so tasty. Yeah. What, did you have any like things that you picked up from your rewatch, Sheppy, that you... There were a couple which I have forgotten because I didn't write them down in the moment because <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt the film. <laughs> but I can tell you one thing in terms of the characters and so on. The side characters are all so well realised, like everyone, and the villains are so likeable. And you're told repeatedly that they are thieves and murderers and rapists, but yet you do really like them. El Guapo is so cool, and his uh, second in command, Epe, is yeah. um, you know he's great. And so when they die, you are actually sad. Um, and you know, even though it's like when you want the woman, you take that woman. It's like that's you know, it's like well, yeah, he should die. He's a horrible person, but you're like, yay. <laughs> so. Um, so I like that. It has so many cool and meaty touches. Like one example is El Guapo's woman. Uh, it's like, do you know what far play is? Good, neither does El Guapo. Her, when El Guapo and all of his mates are riding off at a gallop for the final confrontation back at the village and he races out of his, his compound, she is like standing at the gate watching him go with this real sadness. And indeed, it is the last time she will ever see him. So that's, you know, it's like good, it's like, say, Shaun of the Dead, or indeed American Werewolf, where it sort of, it goes deep into real genre stuff, even though yeah. it, it's played it straight, but it's nice. And it's not necessary, and it's great, and it's really nice. So I like, and there's loads of stuff like that. Yeah, I totally agree. But that's what I, I we, that's a very interesting point, Sheppy. I'm going to say I do think it's necessary on this Well to a degree just that you've got then the three amigos literally butting up against this real world i really like that they play it straight everywhere else like it's really nice really nice. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah i think that's, that's always been my favorite thing a certain yeah. level of established verisimilitude and then it doesn't matter how crazy everything else is like superhero films i always like the first superman film because it's set in a kind of a real world a, a relatable world let's say a heightened world but not everyone's fucking going crazy. And so that's nice. And people react in a sort of realistic way to see Superman fly around. And it's the same with this sort of film where there is a reality to it and there are consequences. And they, you know, Martin does get shot at the arm and there's blood. And so, you know, there, there are, and you do see one dude get twatted by a horse um, and he's fucking dead. So, you know, it doesn't dwell on any violence, but you can bet when they blow up the village, there's like death and so it's so it's yeah it's got it does have there are stakes which is yeah. which is nice even though it is cartoonish and everything oh and i'll tell you something else the whole middle section just becomes like a totally different genre like it's always sort of heightened and cartoonish but then you've got like the invisible swordsman and the singing bush yeah. <laughs> And then the horses singing and, and then goodnight, Ned, the little turtle, and this really, really obvious set. And then they get to El Grappa's compound and it goes switches back again. It's like this weird bubble in the middle, um, which I love, but it's just important to point out. And the joke where they're all dying of thirst in the desert and then they Martin takes yeah. Yeah. The drizzle comes out for Martin. It's amazing. 
and then you think that's the worst and then short takes and it's just sand and it's so horrible it's so horrible and and well, then the best it's commitment to gag is it that from short yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry, Jackie, yeah. Maybe it was like chocolate powder or something. Still really horrible, but not as bad as actual sand, one would hope. Um, and then, yeah, Chase, where it's just filled with water and he just drinks and then go all over him and it just cuts back to them watching and back to him and then he spits it out and then he throws it <laughs> and there's still some left. It's like the ultimate, it takes it as far as you think it can take it and it's a real fuck you. And it's like, oh my God. And then the lip balm. It's yeah. It's, it's it leaves a kind of a really horrible feeling in your stomach, but it's amazing and it's played, you know, so perfectly. I want to say like the horrible feeling is mitigated by Dusty's throw of that bowl. Like <laughs> it is the biggest fuck you. It's the biggest thing you can do, and then watch it glug into the sand. But the stupidity <laughs> of the move, if he doesn't mean it horribly, is actually what yeah. makes it all okay. Like, yes. It's amazing. Well, that's, yes, it's a um, staggering, like, just, like, unaware. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's astonishing. It's great. And I, we, you and I respond to that. Clark Griswold is also, you know, on a different level of the spectrum, but still, it's pretty pure. And then goes into your sort of, like, dads from you know eugene levy in american pie and bill dumpy it's all this sort of same sort of you know type which we like all of those characters and so there's definitely yeah this this element some and also the, the thinking you're cool and then obviously not being cool that's always been my favorite thing oh, ever because <laughs> if you can't love it yourself so it's it's tasty and yes his ability yeah because it yeah, again he, it's not vindictive in any way when dusty does it so yes yeah a thousand times yes um did you rewatch it recently? I did, Sheps, yeah and, oh uh, yeah with you with cosmo yes he went bananas at all the horses but that's okay but so we did it in two halves but it was yeah it was it was it was great Sheps. like i've got a little list of about four observations shall i give them to you so please you were talking earlier about the iteration of the Chevy, and I think you're right on the bloody money. And one of the wonderful things about Dusty is he's one of the missing components of the Cheviness is he's just the least ladies' man Chevy ever is. Like, right. he's sitting there strumming, and he's not picking up on any signal right. from this young lady who's interested in him and wants him to kiss her. Like, you know, just not picking up on it at all. And I think it's really <laughs> interesting. I, I've always remembered that gag but just sort of never put it in the context of Chevy's, yeah. you know a yeah. for uh it's, for bonking, again it's the yeah. it's the will ferrell buddy elf um it's yeah. this sort of weird innocence childlike detachment yeah. and it's like would you like to kiss me <laughs> yeah and then it goes back to strumming and it just takes her and the audience a beat to realize oh oh no oh no it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then yeah you can kiss me on the veranda on the lips is fine <laughs> i can't wait for you Sheffy, because you you yeah you've absolutely nailed the beats even in the bloody observations that's very exciting and well, um, so i <laughs> um i love that like lucky steve martin is not so good at the lasso like he's all right he's competent but <laughs> 
you can really see him concentrating. Like <laughs> they leave it in, which is cool happy, because so. he could do it like much, much more expertly. Because Martin is talented at that sort of thing, <laughs> so it's cool. It's like playing the piano not as well as you actually could. That sort of thing. Yes, <laughs> you know, Martin learned how to do the lasso when he was seventeen, and he was working at Disneyland. So there you bloody go. Awesome. Good yeah. Later to be seen in parenthood. But to give it the parenthood, yeah, I bet he was like that with the kids, you know. <laughs> nice. Yes. Well, they had they had the whole big gun in the holster gag, right? And I don't know like whether that's but they, they never really play on it and just sort of say, um, you know, like they're they're doing the like spinning around their finger and someone has to wait for them to do it like do you know what I mean? but they just yeah. keep doing it for a long time every time you know but they could have like really let into that even more i feel That's true. just uh but i like it i like it all the same and then my new chevy observation was just just before el guapo is about to get there and they are going to do the amigos 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 and have them all you know dressed up it was a salute yeah um they chevy's with a little army of men and they're like, right, okay. And and he's giving them instructions. Basically, the big task is they've got to dig a hole. And I'm sure I have observed this before, but I, I just had totally forgotten it. And it's a big deal. They've got to dig the hole and they've got to dig it quickly. And then as soon as they get started, Chevy throws his kicks in <laughs> and it immediately locks with another guy's spade and they get like, stuck and they're like pulling each other like that. It's yeah, it's Ned. It's it's short. Um, that he gets locked up oh, that's with. That's so nice. That's so yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I noticed it before, but I'd forgotten it existed. And when it happened this time, it got me where, and it's the most amazing piece of physical, you know, it looks so easy, which of course it's so hard. Chevy goes to get off the horse and he's in the middle and he sits, he goes backwards oh, and he yeah. flips his leg over Martin's short um, horse and he's like got his back to the camera. He's like, what? And it's, it's amazing. And the yeah. what makes it amazing as well. Like, yeah. where is everybody? I mean, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> not understanding the reality. Uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> what am I presented with? How, how is this possible? I could have sworn I just got up a horse, and why am I looking at a forest? Yeah, amazing, amazing. <laughs> I think it speaks also to like a really interesting dynamic of movies like this now, where I would suggest I probably almost have as much, if not more, laughter from reminiscing about little moments like that or killing the invisible swordsman whatever it might be like you know i um I, I feel like when i'm watching the movie itself especially if i was on my own doing it you know there's a titter there's a <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> having a few beers with someone like yourself sheppy and we're talking about stuff like that and think uh, uh, there's something now that's deeper in the veins about it i'll almost get a bigger laugh thinking about what was in the veins of Chevy Chase that day and in the moment when they created that stupid gag and how wonderful and perfect the gag is, taking nothing away from how great it was. But I'm just feeling like sometimes the movie version of it is now a wee bit diluted because I've seen it so many times, but the reminiscence of it is more powerful right. now almost. Does that make any sense? Like, Yes, it makes perfect sense. I, I, just, I love yeah. it, yeah, because you're yeah. tapping into the, the source memory nostalgia vein yeah. so yeah tote tote um i love really it knowing yes. what they were going for with it really knowing what they were going for appreciating yeah. that with someone else that appreciates it too almost makes it live longer and more powerfully now for me because yeah i don't know it's just nice it makes me happy well 
I mean, yes, very well said, I agree. You know, I mentioned Martin was one of the writers and he, I just, we spoke, you know, about the other two. Martin is obviously amazing and he might be out of my, out of the three favorites, I mean, you know, Lucky might be the one, just because there's a bit more to him, I guess. Like if I had to, had to within the film, when just as Martin's just doing, because Trevi is doing, it's like the Hulk, it's fantastic, but it should be this kind of one note, you know, one, one flavor. And so it's pure Trevi and he's the Hulk. Um, whereas you know, Martin is more kind of like, hey, hey, and just seeing him and he's such like, he's, you know, he's a bit more, intelligent but he's so stupid and he of course is the one who fucks them with blue woman and just totally is like out of control narcissist and massive nose face um no dough no show amazing <laughs> amazing uh, so yeah i'm a big fan a big fan of martin anyway and i do really like lucky day nice nice Jeffy. well listen i'm I'm ready to jump in if you're ready to nice. jump in. Oh, well, there was one note I wanted to share. Um, Carmen, who's played by Patrice Marti Martinez, is, the, is also the receptionist in Beetlejuice, who had that little accident, and the lady on the train in Dirty Rodden Scoundrels. So she oh, must have been getting on with Martin. It's like, you know, I'm getting up here. And he goes, oh, come on, Freddie. No, no, I'm going to stay on with her. With her. Yeah, so they they got also got on like a house on fire. So that's lovely. That's really nice. She's passed and away I, now. Did you know that? Oh, uh, it's sad. Yeah. Well, she was lovely and good for her. Um, I got here that uh, Martin was working on the script in 1980, and it was apparently planned to be him, Aykroyd, and Belushi. And apparently Spielberg was attached, sort of, at one point, but he did ET instead and wanted Murray and Robin Williams. So think about that. Um, so, so that's like a little bit, yeah, that's, 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 I mean, again, that's not necessarily true, but that's what IMDB said. So that's. I think the energy and the dynamic, so just even to give you the little bubble of the buttercup scene with the Chevy, like, oh, I really shouldn't, I should have. Yeah, but he's already walking. Yeah. And yeah. Amazing gag, and you just don't get the saxophone gag and anchor man without that gag ever. Like you know, so the the, the influence on Will Ferrell is profound from Chev, as you already mentioned, Sheppy, and, and, and that's very happy for me because you, we all know how much I love him. But um, the, uh, the I, I just feel like they have it right. The secret source is right between these three, and I think you throw Robin Williams in there, and it slightly overwhelms the other two. In a, in a way that's not helpful for this yeah I think. yeah but mm. yeah that's a valid point and i like it and i wouldn't change this combo for anything it's a very perfect uh threesome and the balance i think is pretty pure so yes as always i'm sure there's a million things i'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and not be able to think of but i think we we can dive in i'm dying to hear yours jimmy i'm very excited unless there was anything else let me just ask you this in terms of spies like us and three amigos, do you have a one percent or even a five percent preference? I think three amigos has been more beloved for me, but I would suggest if I was to watch Spies Like Us tonight, I'd laugh out loud more during that screening than I did in the last screening of Three Amigos. I love the rewatching Three Amigos, it's lost nothing, but there'll be some more surprises that I've forgotten in Spies 
So I think my enjoyment of Spies as a movie might be a wee bit more right now. But I mean, I, I love them both. I think on balance, it's Amigos 51 and then nice. Spies 40. Oh, that's, but yeah. that's deep and I like it. Um, a million I, I, scenes, Chevy, that you take to your life, bro. Like even just writing all your answers down on an eye patch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, no, You're, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. They're both amazing. Um, I wanted to say, actually, I'm so glad I just remembered. There is a longer version, a much longer cut of Three Amigos, that and but Landis was all tied up in his court case, and so the studio edited the film, and it's not Landis's edit. And there's lots that, that was taken down. I think it's like an hour 45. And it was like a proper, maybe two hour five, two hour 10 jobby. Um, and and wow. I do know, maybe that's even, not even, maybe it was like two hour, but even so, I know there was a whole bit um, at the beginning, presumably just before they get to Fugerman's office and they're walking through the studio. And like, I think it's one massive tracking shot. And you see like you know, a bunch of Roman soldiers walking by the classic backlock joke. Some people with a mirror and a bicycle delivery person, <laughs> you know, dancing girls with feathers and stuff, and cowboys and Indians chatting amongst each other um, with arrows sticking out of them. Um, all of that. And so there was there was something like that. And there was a character played by someone who is now vaguely famous. I'm going to say Gina Gersher, but it's not. Um, but someone was in that section or was in the film and had a role and it was cut, presumably again in that area. I don't know if some of the scenes went on much longer as well, but you know, so wow. there's, there's all sorts. But I, I do like the fact that it's a tight film. Yeah, you wouldn't want it to go much longer, but I, you know, I'd be really interested what was on the floor. I'll say this I know that the bats they were eating in the desert were bacon. So that's exciting. And so I like that. And apparently sure. Landis, Landis had the most trouble with the coyote, um, but all the other animals were really special. So that's something I found. Oh, that's good. I'm very reassured it was bacon and not bat, and the three amigos didn't start COVID. Um, that's true. What a twist. Oh, and also I like the clipped Hollywood speech, and you've got your Phil Hartman and your John Lovitz being proper. I love that sort of hey what's going on why's Klondike one two three um and they're both that voice anyway and seeing them both again 80s and prime SNL alumni and it's just nice and it's like take the Amigos Claire's and I like that <laughs> yeah he's with amazing the, the dead eye really smug so and I love and I never know I always forget how to pronounce his name but I love the guy who plays Fugerman who was in Barry recently as yeah, himself exactly Mantegna yeah yeah Mantegna yeah Joe um something so so that's nice yeah he's great and he's amazing as Fugerman and quick spoiler he was going to be my main villain but the mm. film sort of like I, I was so trying not to make it into an epic so it didn't really so, no, not so much, but he was going to be the main villain. Yeah, in a oh, better footnote. Yes. Well, I can't. But, he, but, he, I can't but, but he is in it. <laughs> so, anyway, I just wanted to mention Hartman and Lovitz because they're, they're great. Nice, man. They're very good. Well, they both make a very small cameo comeback in mine, too. So, that's oh, good. I'm glad. Um, well, let's get to it, son, because I cannot wait. Well, listen, I need spoiler alert. And I texted you this yesterday. I am 
broadly happy with some of the things in this you know um, it doesn't have an ending Sheppy I literally I li I'm not even joking like yeah. I've left them on a cliffhanger <laughs> right now and um and I'm not sure how to get out of this cold you could have like some of the listeners write in yeah maybe we could just leave it on a cliffhanger and see what people think should happen next but uh but yeah so I don't um, think I'll be able to keep my mouth shut if <laughs> listeners want to do that they can pause it write what they think then listen to what we say um, yeah, but you have to write it first. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you'll you'll know exactly what I mean when we get there. It's quite it is quite the cliffhanger. If you really want, oh, I'm to looking forward to it. Oh no, I'm I'm, um, I'm very excited. I'm very uh, excited. <laughs> uh, so anyway, look, this is the return of the three amigos, Sheppy, 1991, John Landis. Um, clean five years. A clean five. Steve Martin is lucky day. Chevy is Dusty Bottoms, Martin is Ned Nederlander, amazing name. I don't think that one gets as much credit as it needs. Um, <laughs> then we have uh, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Twinkle Star. I, I, I haven't really done too much with the name. <laughs> so easily identifiable as we go through. So Eddie, Eddie Twinkle Star. And then we've got Rosie Perez as oh. uh, El Bonita. Um, so I didn't know this, but guapo means uh, handsome. So yeah. this means, you know, El Benita obviously was beautiful. Um, and oh, nice. Rosie Perez really broke in Do the Right Thing in 1989. So I figured this is good timing for her. White men oh, yeah. type era. And she's going to play El Guapo's sister, spoiler alert. Oh, nice. And uh, we've got... Oh. oh, yeah. And then, because I just couldn't resist, and I, I was going to have him in as some sort of sheriff type dude, but no, I've got a different route. Um, we've got John Candy in here as Candy. Love is back as Morty, and as he said, Montagna back as Flugelman. So, okay. We start. I love Flugelman. Sorry. I just had, I love Flugelman so much. He's like one of my favorite characters ever. I don't think I've written him very well, to be honest, but, but he just plays a necessary part at the beginning. I don't know if I've necessarily really recaught what he's doing with the character, but anyway. That's but, cool, though. <laughs> So we just start with a cup, uh, a group of teenagers uh, sneaking into the back of a cinema that's playing an early Three Amigos flick. So this is sort of a set in the past, I guess. What maybe let's just call it 1908 or something. Do you know what I, mean? oh, I don't know. Okay, just what we didn't mention. It's, it's, it's sixteen, I believe. Yeah. It's it's in the first film is nineteen sixteen. Yeah, yeah. So it's during the First World War, right? So yeah. yeah. This, that doesn't really fit with the the narrative of when Ned might have joined them or not. Maybe it's maybe it's a different person. It's the third Amigos. It's pure cameo from Murray or something here. Like it's an early three Amigos flick. We got Murray in as as the original Amigo. Oh, oh like, that'd be really like, funny. I need actually. Edit for myself right now. So that'd be nice. That's, that's brilliant. Oh. It's like Rod Jane and Malcolm on Rainbow, and it's like what the <laughs> fuck. Um, cinema's packed. Um, these boys are stuck in there without paying. Everyone's gasping and ooing and loving it in the cinema. I've put there's just, there's an old lady in there with a few seats free behind her. These teenagers sneak in behind her, and a couple of the teenagers build a little popcorn tower on her on her bee's nest. Like you know, you, you <laughs> love a popcorn tower. I know you do, Sheppy. You're a home um, and away. <laughs> no, you're going to say that. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 then. Um, because they've just found some discarded popcorn there or whatever. Anyway, 
the 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 boys that are building the tower they they call out to their buddy and elbow him and like why aren't you joining in but they're young eddie but um so the young eddie someone some kid playing the young eddie murphy to join in but the young eddie murphy is absolutely transfixed by the screen and isn't joining in building the popcorn nest and he's just staring in wonder at the amigos saying you know through the title cards wherever there is trouble etc um and the scout the, these teenage guys are like you know come on eddie eddie and uh and, and the, the the eddie eddie turns into more of a crypt eddie 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 you're that and, uh, and we flash forward to uh eddie murphy sat in 1916 flat cap um waiting outside the flugelman producing office and um love it morty is calling out eddie flugelman will see you now mm-hmm. and um and basically we had more taken back as flugelman um, and um, this is, you know, uh, Eddie Twinklestar's moment. He's written this script, which is a monumental um, piece of work, and um, and is giving Flugel, Flugelman a um, a very big emotive pitch from the screenplay he's written, um, the redemption of the three amigos. And, um, and Flugelman's like, no one's even seen those three bums in over a year. We may not. Have... And he's like, we haven't even had a hit since then. But this is something we can't do, Twinkle Star. And, uh, <laughs> and basically, uh, Lovitz is actually there with another assistant, Candy. This is our John Candy. And as he says, you know, this is something we can't do. They both sort of shake their heads like because they've been instructed and trained to mm. do. And, um, and Eddie Murphy gives it this. It's about oppression. It's about Western entitlement. And I think these three characters are the ones to tell this story. And uh, Fugelman said, Eddie, I don't know how to break this to you, but you're not Mexican. And Eddie Murphy just gives the, the fourth wall us, or like one of his Eddie Murphy looks, like just a big into the screen and back again. Um, and you know how he does those? Like, it's not even an eyebrow sometimes. It's just, can't even it's read dead. the expression. Yeah, it's just there. It's dead. It's dead. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking specifically of, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of a raised eyebrow with um, park ballets, but yeah, I'm thinking of when the car drives away, it's like, yeah, it's not like, what? It's just, yeah, really, really unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and then anyway, like, uh, he, he turns back to Brugelman from his fourth wall break and then just says, look, Flugelman, if you just turn to page 17 with a battle on the horses and here, page 36, I'm telling you, man, this would be a hit. And, uh, and this is starting to get Flugelman's attention. He's looking at the pages in a bit more detail and he's like, Dusty Bottoms riding two horses? I, I don't think I've seen that before, actually. And he goes, ah, God damn it, Eddie. Twinkle Star, if we even greenlit this. Oh, but we don't even have those entitled pricks. And, uh, and anyway, um, Eddie Twinkle Star says something like, you know, my friend's cousin's pet sister said she heard something about them heading off to Santa Poco a year ago. We could start there. Fugelman sort of contemplates this for a sec and says, look, Twinkle Star, you got 10 days to find the amigos. You do that and you've got yourself a picture. And uh, and Eddie Twinkle Star says, thank you, sir. You will not regret it. And we get a huge cheesy like Eddie Murphy grin. And, um, and then Twinkle Star says, Candy, you go with him. Make sure he doesn't blow the budget for travel. And, that, and uh, Candy's like, Candy, I see, is basically playing exactly Wally World security guard. <laughs> and it's like absolute cool. Back I maybe. already had that in my yeah. mind. Yeah, with his little stuff, putting his hand up. Sorry, Bob. Yeah. And um, 
and basically uh, Candy gives it a but sir you know what the heat will do to my eczema but that and then basically all three of the other men in the room just look at each other like that and they're back to Candy and we get this look at um and we're straight into the Mexican desert and it's blistering heat exactly as Candy's just described and then we're getting sort of close to sunset time the camera is on Dusty He's chewing gum. He's looking really hard in his Amigos costume, I should say, for the avoidance of doubt. And um, and he's just sort of chewing his gum, saying, so you think you're pretty hot shit, huh? And then Lucky, camera cuts to Lucky there, standing next to Dusty, as he's like got his gun out, giving Steve Martin evils. You picked the wrong day to step outside of the law. And then to Ned, also with his gun out, and now you're ours. And Dusty says, all ours, and spits in the dirt. And Lucky goes, got to hand it to you, though. Took balls like that. And we just hear this little squeaky voice say, but, senor, it was just Rambutan like that. And there's just a really cute-looking six-year-old kid, and he's holding up a pair of Rambutans, which, for listeners who don't know, and I didn't know, but I did, gave a little Google, it's a very spiky red fruit that grows in Mexico. And it looks, yes. if you happen to have a pair of them, just looks like a pair of balls. And then, and then just... I love that you know that. <laughs> yeah. Did you Google fruits that look like balls? Well, I just, I went fruit that grows in Mexico and then that came up and I thought, oh, it gave me a whole re reeb of little silly gags. And um, I love it. <laughs> and, um, but they are still considering this kid to be almost as evil as El Guapo, which is ridiculous. And um, and then uh, and Ned's like, hand him over. And the kid re reluctantly kind of just shoves this Rambutan into Ned's palm. And Ned lets out a little squeak. And um, and they start to play out the Amigo speech. And when it gets to Ned's line, he's still sort of picking at the fruit in his palm. <laughs> absolutely stuck there. And it's crazy stuck. Like he's stretching his skin like this. <laughs> And um and Lucky turns to face Ned, waiting for the line. He's like, Ned, stop playing with those balls. And Ned gives him, <laughs> yeah. And Dusty also turns to face him and sighs and says, Lucky, you take the ankles, I'll take the hips. Like that. And basically they're going to try and pull it off him. And um, <laughs> and that makes no sense because it's not even attached to the hip. And, uh, and as they're distracted, trying to help Ned with his prickly fruits, and we hear a high pitch, yeah. And the kid has stolen one of their horses and headed for the hill. <laughs> Um, and the amigos follow in hot pursuit with Dusty on one horse and Lucky and Ned on the other, Ned backwards and still clutching his hand, bouncing along. And as they ride away from us, epic shot, we get the title card, Return of the Three Amigos. And then um, we cut then to an even grander, um, what did you call it, a fortress or a, what that they, the El Guapo oh, compound. compound, that's the perfect word for it. I put like headquarters here, but your compound, I'm trying to remember to say that. I like that, Sheppy. Um, and we meet El Benita, Rosie Perez. Um, and she is, by all accounts, even more fearsome than her brother. And she finds out from a um, a bandito that made it out from the first film alive that her brother has been murdered. And um, and she has a two IC that I haven't cast, but it'd be really nice if it was Epe, did you say, or Epe? I can't remember the I joke. think so, something, yes. Just say it's the same bloody guy. Oh, amazing. <laughs> oh, it's pure sequel, of course. <laughs> and he's like, did you get a good look at these outlaws? And the guy who's survived, the survivor just sort of says, see, see. And, uh, and he starts drawing in the, in the dirt in front of him, like a big round sombrero. 
and then another big round sombrero and they're looking uncannily like a pair of boobs and opening <laughs> box her gun like that and, uh, and the uh, the CYC FA order says were there not three gringos and he goes see see and he draws another hat like that and uh, so it doesn't look like two boobies and um and he says we saw them heading for Santa Pico by that and um, so this is not the most original way to build on Santa Poco's made-up name, Sheppy, but Santa Pico. And um, <laughs> and Perez raises her hand, and she looks and sounds fiercer than El Guapo, I say. And, uh, and it's just like a big salute to all of her people, and they immediately ride for their uh, for their revenge for Santa Pico. And then we see a little mini title card saying Santa Pico, and this kid um, who, on the stolen Amigo horse rides into town, Followed by the three amigos on their two horses. I've put here just a small scene. The amigos get a warm reception because word is spread of their past heroics with El Huapo. Um, the kid's mum finds him, chastises him a little bit. And I like to think that um, Lucky is kind of doing the leading and the talking here. And um, and in the background, as he's talking, Ned is causing some chaos with the embedded spiky fruit in his hand, maybe catching and tearing some dresses or accumulating extra skewed props, <laughs> props and that sort of stuff, silly stuff like that. Brilliant. Um, and a beautiful Mexican lady approaches Dusty and thumbs his collar and says, we must get these clothes off. And Dusty says, well, really, I, uh, <laughs> and he gives a little Chevy cough like that. And uh, but thinking he's pulled, you know, um, and she just says, because you stink. <laughs> and steps back from him from the smell as well. And another lady sniffs Steve, and I put he eyes her. Oh, sorry, Lucky. There's not too much of the Steve Lucky. That's bit. okay. And, and he just eyes her very sort of down his nose, but defensively and a bit hurt. You know how Steve Martin can kind of do that yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, with his little eyebrows slightly yeah. knitted together. Yeah, absolutely, the bit of the eyebrow. Um, and um, and anyway, so that that's sort of the, the close of the scene there. Like you know, they kind of they, they, the the amigos have been on the road for a little while here. And um, meanwhile, Murphy, Murphy and Candy. Now, by the way, I've cast these two because I really want to see them in it. But I, yeah, I'm I'm quite pleased with what I do in the later scene with the amigos and really capturing what they could possibly do with this. I've underwritten Murphy and Candy, Sheppy. So you just got to assume. There's lots yeah. of Murphy Candy awesome on the road hijinks, like you know, but yeah, essentially no, that's good stuff. <laughs> and also, may I say, Candy would have been an interesting alternative to Short in the original. That's, that's I agree, thing. definitely. A yeah, an interesting dynamic. And um, but anyway, they get to Santa Poco, our original town, um, and they both stick out like sore thumbs, dressed LA Hollywood circus 1916, you know. Um, neckties, boaters, whatever that looks like, you know. and um, they go into the bar from the first film. I've put there's a pic there, inexplicably, of the three amigos taken from a point that it's impossible that it should have been taken, but it's from the buttercup scene. And, um, <laughs> and the amigos are pure high camp in the picture, and all their huge smiles, you know, and the patrons <laughs> are all there looking pure grumpy like that, you know. But that's that's from Cinderella, and Eddie is like pure. Of course, we're here, you know, this is the right place. Um, they ask um, for directions. We get at some point, like there's some kind of in horse play in the bar of some sort. Um, uh, cameo from Patrice Martinez back here for Carmen. 
and she said they were, the direction they were headed out towards, which was, you know, Santa Pico instead, uh, which is, you know, probably at least a day away. Um, and says, you know, if you see them, oh, oh, I didn't finish writing this bit. I feel really ashamed. Maybe you can fill in the blanks, Sheffy. But I thought there'd be a funny little moment here where she says, um, you know, if you see them, please give Lucky this. And she gives him something that looks really special or silly like that, you know, and it's like a, another play on the gag of like, you know, Oh, this must be very special. It's like, no, no, no. If, if it was made now, it, I mean, well, I don't know, maybe this is not what you mean, but like, if it was made now, like set now, it would be like a Mickey Mouse watch or something. Yeah, lovely. Like something kind of cute, but, you know, really disposable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like an old cracked China cat. Yeah. And it's never been mentioned before anyway, so no. it's presented to the audience like, oh, we all know, of course, Lucky and her, they have this China cat with a cracked little ear yeah <laughs> nice and he gives it to candy he sniffs it or whatever it is and then, that's that. and then and then here's like another scene that's underwritten but i think iconically needs to be in it we get we cut back to the amigos in santa pico now and i see them in a little like barrel bath together there's two small <laughs> and i i just think that has to happen and they're all in it together you know assuming they're naked because we don't get any clothes on under their, their necks and, um, and they're just sort of you know having a little scrub of the feet you know out of the edge or whatever you know just chatting and um, maybe there's a cue for another dusty song like you know but uh we <laughs> shouldn't but he's got the guitar by the side of the bath or whatever and um, lots of banter etc nice stuff anyway um the dynamic of this bath scene though is then at the end of it upset by um, the assault on the town by El Guapo's sister, um, El Benito, um, and the boys hop out of their um, suds, and um, the same lady that originally said they stink is upon them, asking them what to do, how can the amigos help them, um, and, uh, and Lucky immediately says, can you sew, can you guys sew, you know, and uh, uh, calling back our amigos, 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 and, uh, and the, the, the then sort of rethinks himself and says, no, no, there's no time for that, um, Ned looks at his hand and says, what about the Rambutan? Do you have any more of that? And, uh, and then there's another sort of old big fella who's got a couple of big lines later as well, actually. He's like, no, senor. In Loco Pinco, we grow tomato. Like that. And, um, so apologies in advance to any Mexican listeners here for any... Um, <laughs> oh, don't worry, Jimmy. Yeah. You're bulletproof because I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torpedo. I'm going to hashtag myself. So don't you worry. <laughs> and Dusty's like tomatoes. We can work with tomatoes. And um, and anyway, we have this huge big battle um with guns and tomatoes, etc. So much so I put that we have to have the moment where Dusty hears the gunshot, thinks he's been um shot, lulls around very dramatically, <laughs> only to discover that it's tomato juice on his shirt. Um I just see a big squashed massive tomato, which is just like burst on his right <laughs> chest. <laughs> And the battle culminates in the amigos and the villagers pinned, defeated, and they're in the local bar. And um, and El Benito is about to exact her terrible revenge, just as Eddie and Candy come into town and um, enter the bar. But they too are taken hostage immediately. Um, <laughs> but in the milieu, though, Lucky is able to ask Eddie and uh, Candy, like, "What the hell? Who the hell are you guys? And what are you doing here?" And Eddie's like, you know, we're here from Flugelman Studios. And Dusty's like, Flugelman? 
and he totally drops his card. It's not even that funny. It's only funny to me. But he's because he's at gunpoint, you know, and he sort of totally drops his card, steps out of the fact that he's in a life situation. <laughs> and he's like, that son of a... Like that. And then he gets another gun in the face from one of Elbert's <laughs> uh, people and uh, it just stops him in his tracks. And... Um, <laughs> And then Lucky's again. Why are you here? Yeah, me too. (laughs) Why are you here? Like that. And uh, and then he says, We want to make a picture with you. Like that. And and El Benito's like, Oh, there's pictures. You killed my brother. We will skin you alive. Like that. And then Ned just says, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And uh, and he then steps out of his guard. And um, and he's like, To Benito, how much do you make a month from your? You're pillaging, you know, on average. And Benita ridiculously entertains the question. And, uh, and she's like, I, I don't handle the numbers of that. And, uh, and Ned suddenly gaining in a bit of confidence. I, so I've just put her 2IC, but we know it's FA. And of course he's across the numbers because he's a legend. And um, he's like, how much do you make for that? And the FA just says, $1,000, give or take, for that. And that's like, $1,000, huh? And Ned starts to walk around the bar and he's suddenly owning it, like with the confidence of this yeah. idea that is percolating for him. And maybe he steals a peanut from a bowl with some intimidating banditos, catches it in his mouth, something like that. And, yeah, uh, the classic throw and catch. <laughs> and Lucky and Dusty, to your point earlier, like, you know, they exchange one of their little looks and they both shrug with it. I don't know what Ned, where Ned's going with this, you know. And, um, and then Ned walks over to Candy and goes, how much can you make a year from the movie business like that? And Candy just sort of looks down or shuffling like, you know, oh, I don't know, a buck a day, enough for rent every fortnight. And uh, whatever the 1916 quit would be for appropriate minimum wage, you know. Right. Um, Benita's getting very restless with all this talk as well. Like, you know, it's about the cock gun again. And uh, and it's like, does the almost like a shut up, Ross, you know. But basically, yeah. it's, Eddie, help me out here. What's the average Hollywood star make? And Eddie's like, 50,000 bucks a picture? And that's like, 50,000 bucks a picture. How does that sound, El Benito? And then um, and, um, and, and, uh, El Benito's starting to turn a little bit. And he's like, now let me see here. And uh, Eddie here has a script. But he takes his massive wedge out of the uh, pocket. He goes, let's take a look-see. And Ned starts flicking through. Exterior night. Ned arrives at a mysterious bar. Ned's reading this out loud, by the way, I should say. Exterior night. Ned arrives at a mysterious bar and drifts. And then as he's talking, he sort of drifts off into the prose and stops saying it out loud. He looks up at Eddie with tears in his eyes and says, brought back Emily? Like that. And then he gives a nod of like, you know, fanboy. Yeah, I brought back Emily. Like that. <laughs> and, and then he's suddenly lost in his own narrative and suddenly everyone's back in danger again um, <laughs> fortunately Lucky has cottoned on takes the script and um, <laughs> off, off Ned and goes and this this script with and he looks at the front page and his eyes startle and he tears it like that and just goes and those mm. eyeballs sort of pop out of his head like with his sort of his opus being mishandled like that but um Steve's kind of got an idea here. He's like, this magnificent opus is called The Adventure of Emmeline. Like that. And Lucky's yeah. eyes sort of narrow, you know. And then Lucky kind of ignores him and moves over to El Benita. And I can just 
<laughs> now you've got to try to imagine this, Chevy, but I just totally imagined Rosie Perez and Steve Martin landing this moment with pure energy. But Rosie Perez's eyeballs fluctuate and drive Lucky's delivery and behavior here in a pure sort of Steve Martin way. And Steve Martin, yeah. once again, this is called, and he just says, the adventure and her eyeballs narrow. <laughs> and he turns into revenge. And then he goes, <laughs> and she smiles. And he goes, of Emmeline. And her eyes narrow again. And then he goes, Del Benita. <laughs> he just does a break breath like that. The revenge of El Benita. The revenge of El Benita. And who better to play Benita and become a Hollywood star than? And Martin kind of twirls his hands in front of Rosie Perez. And she's visibly melting a little at the idea. And um, and Dusty gives an aha, because he's finally short to what they're going on about, picks up the nearest drink, takes a swig, and it's a spit swill. And he makes a horrendous screwed up face, like the like of which we haven't seen Chevy pull, then gives the Chevy classic round eyeballs, then tries <laughs> to take another swig. Um, <laughs> Now, that is like the deepest cut I've gone in the whole thing, Sheffield. The rest now moves at a bit of a clip. Um, the, we, we then have um, um, uh, <laughs> a makeshift screening room at the back um, where they're going to show Albany to what they're kind of talking about here with some footage or whatever that Candy has to have, to have in his bag or there might be some old reels hanging around the place. Um, and, um, and Eddie says to Lucky, you know, what's the plan here, man? And, that, and uh, Lucky says, we make her a star and we get her off our back. And then he's like, you know, I think this lady's going to kill us as soon as we say cut for the last time. And um, and before the movie, uh, we, well, actually, I wonder whether there's an opportunity for um, for Lucky to then, but they're going to do a little screening, like make sure screening of an Amigos picture. And, um, and Lucky says, Ned, would you like to? And then the, almost mimics Dusty's gag with the, you know, I I don't know if I'm really, you know, <laughs> you know when we first started doing the treatment, <laughs> and then cuts him off and shoots the ceiling and she says, enough. But as soon as the movie starts, she's transfixed, moves with the action maybe during the movie, et cetera. And at the end, she's like, okay, we make a movie. And, um, and Eddie's like, you know, lucky, there's one part we're going to need to cast. The fourth amigo. And so we cut to an audition scene because he's written in the fourth <laughs> amigo and basically has written himself into the movie, obviously. And so we have this audition where Eddie auditions for the fourth amigo in front of, you know, the three amigos, El Benito and Candy or, or, and otherwise and other characters, just weirdly assembled Benditos. Um, but Eddie's audition is full of emotion and his line is, I always wanted to ride with you. And he's fully choked. He fully delivers it, tears in his eyes. Then he flips and twirls and twizzles his gun and reholsters it better than any of the Amigos ever had. Second audition, we just get a totally grizzled, monotone, like Mexican bandito dude. And he just goes, I always want to ride you. <laughs> Lucky goes, no, 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 ride with you, with you. <laughs> I just looks at Lucky and just says, ride you. And then just shoots his gun into the ceiling and tucks it into his belt. And Peter goes, squeaks with delight, goes, we go with Pablo. And Eddie is just visibly crestfallen um, that he hasn't got the part of the fourth amigo. And we just see then Chevy um, sitting next to a bandito, again, in a sort of director's chair for the casting. And... Um, <laughs> He's got a direct, he 
pops out a, a cigar and puts it in his mouth and he goes, you wouldn't happen to have a light, would you, to the bandito? And the bandito strikes a match against his stubble, waits for the flame to get right down to a millimeter, <laughs> hands it over to Chevy, who just goes, <laughs> and like that, he just goes, ow. And then uh, he says, I was saving this for the rap party anyway, and tucks it back into his sleep. Uh, <laughs> and um, and That's great. <laughs> and he walks away dejected from the scene he's been practicing his whole life and candy i thought could give him a little arm around the shoulder and a bit of a i know that and you know that mm -hmm. you should have that part and um anyway benita's like so we go to hollywood yes and um and and between them, the amigos kind of managed to get it to a sure sure we just let's let's hone some of the scenes first so when we get there we're really ready and um Anyway, before shooting starts and they're kind of their rehearsals for the shooting starts and we get a moment between our five core gents here and this general concern at being, about being able to get over the line with Fugelman films, this sort of new Revenge of Il Benita movie. Um, and so it's pretty likely they're actually, they realise they're never going to get to Hollywood and she could change their, her mind and kill them all at any time. But Ned says in this little moment, maybe... We, while we think of a plan B for this situation, we should all do what we did in Amigos Forever. We cut to the rehearsal of a major scene um, and creative differences ensue. Um, and I, I haven't really written this out at all, but you, have you seen, um, oh, bloody hell, I didn't, Hell Sees the, oh, the Coen Brothers Shepherd with yes. the lines, the Would the Disperse So Simple, like that amazing <laughs> scene. There's something in there like we're at here where basically... Right. It gets heated enough with El Benita really fluffing something to basically lose her patience, take matters into her own hands, forget the movie, shoot Lucky, Dusty, Eddie and Candy all in the chest point blank before saying to um, Efe, keep the little one, I like the little one, and taking off with him. Uh, so our four men then immediately come round from Amigos Forever, they've got metal plates under their shirts. Um, nice. That's probably a good sort of seven minutes of the movie, at least. We, we wouldn't just throw away the movie idea completely, Sheppy, but it's just nice. for, the, for the sake of our poor listeners' ears <laughs> so we can get to what to do. Um, but anyway, um, that was the Amigos Forever Escape, doing the pure Back to the Future 3 with the plates. And then um, the plan, obviously, now, and the, the final act is going to be to rescue Ned. Um, and, uh, and there's a moment where uh, Dusty says to Eddie emotionally, you should have a uniform. You should have <laughs> you should have Ned's uniform. You're the fourth amigo. He'd want you to have it. And Murphy, you know, it's meant to be an emotional scene, but then of course he barely squeezes into it. It's really tight and short and all <laughs> um, and the five of them, including Candy, set off for the hometown of um of El Benita. So cue some opportunity for some other fake sets and whatnot and scenes, etc. Um and meanwhile, with El Benita and the kidnapped Ned, I like to think that Ned gets less led astray with El Benita, and this is going to lead to our big Shepi. And he's made to eat the craziest, spiciest pepper that doesn't even really exist <laughs> in all Mexico. And in eating it, it turns him into evil Ned. And um, anyway, like the amigos arrive at the um, El Benita uh, compound where there is a, a makeshift bar. And she's playing poker, and um, and inexplicably, instead of just shooting them all again, she, uh, with her fellow banditos, cuts Dusty in to the game of poker. And the idea is, 
Um, they, if they, they, Dusty's going to play, and if he wins, then um, the uh, that she'll tell him where Ned is, knowing full well that Ned's turned evil anyway. And um, and if uh, if you know if he doesn't win, then they'll kill them all. And um, it's just the scene where they play out a hand of poker, and uh, and one of the banditos just says, uh, "Hey, the gringo has nothing like that." And it's just because I have a friend of mine called Zach who <laughs> once got himself in Las Vegas onto a pro's professional table, not pros, but like the hardcore poker table, right. and he's playing there. And what was Redfish in the corner? <laughs> and one of the guys, really intimidating character, Las Vegas poker play character, just said to uh, my buddy Zach, he goes, Oh, shaky in the corner's got nothing. Like that. <laughs> 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 you really made me laugh. And, um, and, uh, and I think there's something going around, like, you know, the gringo has nothing, and Dusty doesn't even bother with a poker face. He's just like, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Do I fall? Do I die? You know. And anyway, um, Lucky, meanwhile, has spotted somewhere to hide. You know, up in the rafters of this compound somewhere. And he's like, "Go again, go again, double or nothing like that." And um, and the boys all chip in stupid stuff like, you know, maybe maybe the Mickey Mouse watch comes back here or something. Mm -hmm. you put it all in, like you know. And anyway, inexplicably, Albanita lets them double or nothing, and Lucky slopes off up into the rafters, basically where. He can get a better <laughs> a better um, view of the hands that are around the table, and um, and Eddie hands over a watch as part of the stake or something, and he says, says something, you know, my daddy will left me that watch. You better not lose it. And then between him and Candy, Candy's like, your daddy really give you that watch? Daddy's like, hell no, I just want him sharp. And that mm -hmm. anyway, we then have a little recall of the three amigos scene where. Steve is up in the rafters, basically um, trying to like cough the cards to Lucky Go. And of course, he, he falls out the rafter, collapses into the table, um, poker game suspended, turns into a massive bar fight. Um, they actually inexplicably manage to get the better of El Benito, but Evil Ned comes downstairs and says, Lucky, put down your weapon. It's all over. And, uh, and that is my <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. Right in now. Um, well, does do you choose option A and Ned just executes Lucky and Dusty? <laughs> and it's a, it's a fairly shocking ending. <laughs> or do we choose option B where um, Perez turns into her character from White Men Can't Jump? And starts talking about kumquats, or do we do options C? I mean, I guess basically you've got to do something that snaps him out of it before he shoots them. Um, I know they start lucky and dusty, they're going to be shot by evil Ned, and they start singing like at first with their voice breaking because they're so scared, mm -hmm. like my little buttercup. Oh my god, and then, like it, it starts to you see it going on behind. Martin Short's eyes, and he starts sort of silently mouthing along, like sweetest, and then he snaps, oh, and exactly. they all start singing, and you and I, and everyone goes really big, and then Perez gets the gun, and she's going to do something, and someone nice drops a massive vase from the upstairs banister on Perez's head, 
you know what though, Sheppy? I think even better than that. I mean, that is <laughs> the perfect thing. And I want to build on it by saying there's a moment where, like, you know, it actually becomes a bit infectious for everybody. And then yeah. Perez is joining in as well. And then there's a little tilt, like, where, like, you know, Ned still hasn't been converted. And then the sombrero comes down. And then it comes up again and he's all smiling and he's singing. But they're not in the bar anymore. They're on a massive Broadway stage and they're going, my boom, and the Migos musical, written by Eddie Twinkle Star. Come on. Oh, With the look at that. Back. And you've got the pullback and these like fireworks and sprinkler explosions <laughs> on the side of the stage. And it goes back and back. And everyone's like, yeah. I'm so oh, glad we wow. at this. I'm so glad we worked at this. That's perfect. What an end. Well, Jimmy, that experience of listening, well, not even listening, watching in my mind's eye that uh, the return of the three amigos um absolute joyous um i loved it i loved oh, it so good. much yeah. so deeply and i could see everyone from like martin's eyes popping open and ripping away like the, the front cover of the script and all of it um every single joke landed and it worked perfectly and also it's cool that it it's it's kind of its own thing it has the film option you know the, the the element but it's like you say it's like seven minutes or but it's cool and it's just a nice thing so i really dig that spoiler there's at least two things like really prominently in mind it's like happens sometimes but fairly random but we've both chosen certain things which happen which are very specific and not necessarily obvious maybe a little bit but so that's exciting but okay. let me say this it was wonderful though it was wonderful i loved it so much um it was it was really good and i can't wait to listen to it again <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks man um in in terms of life um i will say there's there's a prologue and an epilogue which could easily be left on the cutting room floor it's a real the first three amigos want to be like there's a there's a thing but um i'm gonna i'm gonna include it because why you know why not it exists um, but yeah, we'll, we'll let we'll let fate decide. Um, and I'm just saying, I came up with the title before anything else. I just liked the sound of it. So it's 1988. It's the three amigos must die, and it's directed by Landis and it's Chevy Chase <laughs> yeah, with an exclamation mark. But only one. It doesn't have the one on the other end for this one. Um, starring Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Martin Short, with Dan Aykroyd, Joe Mantegna, David Spade, and mm -hmm. Phil Hartman. And also lovely Mexican actors and actresses who this film discovers, which is my usual excuse, but it's true. Uh, these people will always be, oh, I saw in an episode of MacGyver, the woman from The Three Americas Must Die. So, you know, it's, it's that person, but they're great and they're really lovely and lovely. Um, I love that you went Murphy and I went Aykroyd. Uh, that's great. It, I'm really glad we both, you know, shook that up and went in different directions. And trading places, well. yeah, nice. Of course, well, literally, yes, I love it. Um, so that's nice. Yeah, I like, I, oh my God, I love it so much. So so this is all right. Also, David Spade, so this is 88, so I was thinking, you know, SNL, you know, basically, and so on. Um. Okay, so the opening, and this is the prologue I'm talking about that could be, you know, cutting room floor. 
but it's shown through very old newsreel and silent cinema images, about 50% authentic and you know, 50% made for the film. And over these, we hear the narrator, and I've got Robert Mitchum, but it could be Gregory Peck. <laughs> and it's uh, over this sort of old newsreel and scratchy black and white, as I thought of maybe the bling, plong, pling piano. Uh, the dawn of 1918 was, was a very different world to the one we know today. War continued to rage in Europe. Spanish flu had caused worldwide panic. And in Hollywood, USA, the age of cinema was still in its relative infancy. One chapter had closed on a dying age, but another, well, that was yet to be written. And written it would be by the flaming ink and razor-sharp quill vanished by what some would call outlaws, others heroes, where they walked, the future was shaped. And from this penmanship of giants, these titans of humanity, three would write in the letters the largest, the brightest, the boldest. Their actions had already begun to shape the entire world, even if no one as of yet was aware. But their legend was starting to grow. These three friends, these amigos, their legacy had begun to form, but their most ardent challenge and toughest battle, that, and then the newsreel flickers and starts to go, and goes, was yet to come. And it, it goes and cuts to black. And then we hear like Mexican, uh, like guitar strum, like, and we cut from black to the pre-cred, a caption comes up, Mexico, 1918. It's small, dusty Mexican town, tumbleweeds and donkeys, and a huge, round and tough-looking Mexican walks slowly towards the saloon. He enters and everyone looks and the piano stops and all of that. And he walks to the bar and he dumps his large bag. And I actually see the man's name is, is like something like Aubergine. Or something. Uh, it's, he's got a really interesting name. It's the actor who plays the um, the bartender in the first film, My Little Buttercup. I love it. It's guy. him. It's a different character, but I'm just casting him. He's got a big moustache, um, and you know, it's it's him, but it doesn't matter. It's the same actor. Um, so he's like tequila, and the skinny bartender with a massive moustache serves him tequila with shaking hands, and the man downs it and orders another with the same result. And all eyes are on him from the card game at the table in the centre to the floozy on the stairs to the piano player in the corner who might be Frank Oz. But I've just this second thought of that. <laughs> um, he, he drinks again and there's palpable silence. And then the saloon double doors swing open and three men enter and stand shoulder to shoulder, filling the entrance, hands on hips, pure hero pose. And it's the three amigos. We got on the left, Dusty. No, we got Lucky then Dusty in the middle, then Ned, and Lucky takes half a step forward and addresses the room. He's like, we're looking for El Professor, the one called the teacher. And the whole room uh, staring at the three on one side of the room. And at the same time, all their heads turn really sharply across the room to opposite where the amigos are to the big man at the bar. And the man turns slowly from the bar and you know, appraises Lucky. And we have a large close-up on this man's sweaty face and greasy moustache and half-closed eyes. And he looks for a moment and then he says, I'm the teacher, senor. 
And every time either he speaks or the amigos speak, the whole room, you know, turn their head at the same time like a tennis match. And there's bated breath from all. And now um, Ned steps forward at the exact moment that Lucky steps back. It's so well choreographed. And Ned's like, seems you haven't been doing your homework, teacher. And he's really happy with himself. And he looks around for recognition. And the teacher just stares blank, you know, a bit of a stupid face. And Ned then steps back and Lucky steps forward. And Lucky says, okay, teacher, you owe the good folks of this town. You've not been doing what you've been asked. So now it's our turn. And he steps back into formation and there's a dramatic pause. And then they look to Dusty in the middle, who's just happy to be there. And he's sort of standing there, you know, with a vague expression, little smile. And then he notices that the other two are looking at him and he's like, oh, and then he steps forward. He's like, you were paid to do a job, a job you didn't do, so do it. <laughs> and he steps back and seems satisfied. And the other two look at him again and then sort of, you know, he shrugs it off. Uh, and so then Ned uh, stepping forward um, and he's like really, you know, pure Ned. When a man is paid good money by honest folk, that man has a duty to do that job. Anything less is just, well, not doing your job. And again, he's like really proud of himself and he steps back. And now the teacher steps forward and everyone else in the bar sitting down watching sort of lean back, you know, and he's like, I do my job. And then the room's head, you know, turns again and Lucky's like, I think not. And the heads turn back, I do my job. And the heads turn back and Dusty says, I think not. And does a little shrug again with his hand, you know, like a bottom. And Lucky, he's like, okay Perfect. then. <laughs> so why are you in a filthy, stinking, worm-filled saloon? And the bartender looks hurt. When your job, he pauses, uncertain for a second, and then it's like, hmm. And he turns to the others, you know, huddles and says, wait, what is his job? And the three look confused. And then Lucky turns back to the teacher and Lucky's like, okay, teacher, what is your job? And the teacher, generally confused, is like, I'm a teacher. And Ned is like, oh, you mean you like you teach men to what, die? And Lucky warms to this. He's like, yeah, or you teach them how to feel pain. And Ned's like, oh, that's good. He's like, thanks. <laughs> and the teacher says, no, senior. And then Dusty says, okay, then, what do you teach? Uh, mainly algebra, sometimes geography, <laughs> if Miss Simmons is away. And there's a bit of confusion. And then Lucky's like, so you're saying you are an actual teacher? And the teacher slowly nods. And Lucky's like, okay, then, so why aren't you teaching now? And the teacher's, is vacation. There's a beat, and the amigos huddle again and murmur. And Ned's like, Hey, wait a minute. This is March, right? Right? And Dusty shakes his head like, I don't know. And Lucky's like, you're damn right, it's March. And he steps forward and he's like, vacation's not till Cinco de Mayo, teacher. Seems you're shy one whole month. And the beat, his teacher stares and is like, Cinco de Mayo is in April? And amigos look at each other and they're like, he's like, you're damn right it is. And the piano player looks confused. And then the teacher then says, there's no vacation. And then the whole room shakes their head in sync, like one, two, three, no. And uh, the teacher's like, oh, okay, sorry. And he bends and he picks up his bag, which now looks a lot like a satchel. And he leaves walking past the heroes and he pauses a beat and addresses the room. He's like, sorry, folks, and little shrug. And he walks right out of the bar and the heroes watch him go. 
and he just crosses the road and walks <laughs> straight into the building opposite, clearly marked school. And from inside, we hear, okay, open your books to chapter three. Today we do arithmetic. And we hear the classroom of children cheer. And the amigos look at each other for a second. And then Dusty says, job done. And the three burst into massive celebrations and the bar clap really half-heartedly. And the dust, Dusty says to the bartender, drinks on them pointing to his friends, and the bartender pours three tequilas, his hands still really shaking and spilling, and the bartender's wife then comes out and berates him, saying, I told you not to serve after you've had the coffee, Hector, you know this. And he's like, <laughs> see, 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 and he walks off shaking massively as he goes, and the amigos stride to the bar and pick up a glass, that, and as one, they confidently turn, and it's like the same shot as from the first film when they drink the tequila, and as one, they confidently down the, their drinks and then instantly spit them back out in a fine spray, never losing their composure. And then they continue their massive in, the inappropriate celebrations and out into the street, um, onto their horses, then the salute, bum, 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 huh! and then whooping, backslapping, shooting guns into the sky. And the bar patrons just stare dumbly and Dusty shouts in after them. And don't forget, we also do parties. And Lucky's, yeah! And off they go, riding at top speed. <laughs> and top is in inverted commas because it's probably not that fast. <laughs> Down the centre of town, still laughing and whooping as they go, waving their hats in the air like the heroes they are. And then the three amigos beam kicks in in a massively epic rendition, like ba 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 and Chevy Chase comes up with an exclamation mark and then Steve Martin and then Martin Short and then the three amigos must die and we have the credits and the opening and so on. I'm, I'm, I've got tears in my eyes of happiness right now. Like when you watch yeah. the Lost Ark in the cinema, like I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, cool. So, um, okay, so uh, the, the credits end, directed by John Landis. Music fades and we cut to a gorgeous looking beach in Baja with fine white sands and turquoise water. There's a huge villa, practically a mansion, sitting among the palms and go to inside and it's lovely. Um, and it's you know, all spacious and adjoining rooms and le levels and steps and you know tiled floors and everything. It's very nice looking. And on a wall, the recognizable Amigo hats are hanging next to each other and three pairs of boots are lined up under, underneath. And then uh, we move in down this corridor and a bedroom door opens and we see into it from the landing an unmade bed, sheets all messy, pillows scattered. And Lucky emerges as he finishes putting on his clothes, like doing a cufflink or something. And he speaks to someone in the room behind him. He says, there's no doubt you are worth every penny. But next time, would it kill you to make the bed? And then a tiny, wrinkled, and impossibly old woman comes out, <laughs> and Lucky, <laughs> and and Lucky says, "You know, for a cleaning lady, you leave a lot to be desired. Although as a lady, you also leave a lot to be desired." And she ignores him and picks up a broom and starts sweeping the floor. Uh, so Lucky then moves down the landing, <laughs> um, and Lucky passes another bedroom door, and as he leaves the frame, we stay there, and the door opens, and now Dusty steps out, and he too is buttoning up and smoothing down his shirt, and he too calls into the room behind him, and he's, you know, apparently contently, uh, well, I didn't get a wink of sleep, 
Though honestly, I don't know why I keep letting you into my bed. All you ever do is sleep and snore and leave no room for me at all. Do you know how hard that floor is? And we now sort of angle in and we see into the room and we reveal like a pillow and a blanket on this really hard floor next to the bed. And then in the massive double bed lies Dusty's horse under a blanket and he raises his head from the pillow and whinnies and then lies back down. And Dusty, as he walks out, is like, this was the last time. And Dusty walks down the landing and we follow him. And now stopping next to the third door and Dusty leaves frame and this door opens and Ned comes out and he's all dressed and he's very formal and buttoned up, very neat, very clean. And he speaks into the room slightly curtly with like an academic and like scholarly air. Like, okay, your English is improving, but you'll need to study a lot harder if you're planning on passing the midterms next week. Remember, work hard, speak soft, and don't roll your R's. And then an impossibly sexy woman comes out and she's all like wide-eyed and like, see, senor Ned. And he's like, good. And don't forget, verbs may be tricky, but their worth is in the ultimate sentence structure. Politicians simply will not work. And sexy ladies, see, senor Ned. He's like, don't forget your books. And he passes her two English for beginners books. And we see inside the room and the bed is perfectly made, but the desk is littered with textbooks and papers and two chairs pulled up to it and the sexy ladies see senior Ned and she takes the books and they face each other formally for a beat and then they kiss passionately and for a really really long time really going for it hands all in the hair and shit and then we see in the adjoining kitchen Dusty and Lucky are just watching from the breakfast bar almost salivating and then the kiss just goes on and on and on and on and a eventually ends and the sexy lady like adjusts her dress a little bit and smiles deeply into Ned's eyes and then she leaves and uh, he says after her you need work but your grasp of a foreign tongue remains impressive <laughs> and she smiles and exits and Lucky still stares and Dusty looks a bit miffed and you know starts checking his nails and shit um, and then we catch up with them and their lives and we discover so it's yes it's two years since the amigos um, you know, beat El Guapo and they've been living as heroes in Mexico. Uh, Ned said, like, you know, we're destined to wander. But we discovered they wandered for about three weeks and then they found this really nice place. Um, they have moved from town to town, sorting out disputes and so on and growing in positive notoriety. Uh, you know, as Lucky says at one point, famous and infamous, oriety and not oriety, both work for me. Um, the reputation has swelled with the legends of the three amigos sweeping small villages and beyond. Uh, we also learn that they've been earning good money capitalizing on this genuine fame through endorsements. Um, so as they're talking in this house, they stroll around and we see like various rooms. There's like a pool table, and a nice garden with a gardener working hard. And inside like this cl tiny cleaning room and he's continuing to sweep really slowly really slowly moving across the room and as they talk um they're all happy they talk about their next and there's all sort of weird memorabilia from their adverts essentially and their things that they've been doing uh, just like basically massive sellouts but you know fair enough because they're not accepting payment for their you know with the you know, our reward and all of that so mm -hmm. you know good for them um and so as they talk they discuss the next public appearance they've got lined up and dusty is like what is it anyway and ned says I don't know, you, we need to talk to Arturo. And Lucky is like, 
you know, I sometimes think we're relying too much on him. As agents go, I'm not sure Arturo's fully earning his 0.3%. And Dusty, he's doing pretty well. That fence unveiling was great. And like, like, all right, but all I'm saying is the first chance we get, let's speak to him about maybe getting us something that plays to a little wider audience. Don't you miss just being seen by more than three men and a camel? I don't know, that uh, last audience looked pretty wide to me. And it's like, for now, let's just ask him what's next. And Lucky's like, fine. And then just leans past Ned and cools out, out the window. Hey, Arturo. And we see the tiny Mexican who's doing the gardening. He's bent over a flower bed and turns around. He's like, see, si, Senor Lucky. Like, we were wondering what the next gig is. And Arturo takes out a tiny notebook and starts flipping through it, studying the pages. And then he looks up. He's like, today, cactus workshopping. Mañana, commercial. And Dusty's, great, another commercial. What is it, what's it for this time? Donkey cola? No, donkey juice was Wednesday. I'm pretty sure tomorrow it's uh, siesta caps. And Ned is like, ah, siesta caps. Um, so as we see more of the house, we also pass like a life-size cardboard cutout of Dusty holding a bottle of something called donkey cola. And with the slogan, it puts the mule in you. Oh, uh, the, three, <laughs> the three have it good. Ned leaves all excited and practicing his lines for the siesta caps. Tired of heavy eyes? Now try a heavy face. But as um, then Dusty turns to Lucky once, yeah, they're alone and they have one of those nice moments between them. And Dusty is like, Lucky, this is great. But like you said, don't you ever miss the movies being on the big screen? And then Lucky's like, ah, forget it. If they don't want us, I don't want them. Besides, you remember what it was like. The hours, the pace, the monotony. Trust me, the whole industry's winding down anyway. Small scale, last gasp. Nothing exciting happens in Hollywood. And we cut to Hollywood, and it's a massive studio backlot. Proper old school, ginormous epic set. There's a pyramid, an ancient temple, a sphinx, and a pirate ship floating in a water tank, easily over a thousand extras in various garb, standing on multiple levels and huge camera cranes and a massive rig of cameras, lights, props, not to mention an equally huge crew, and right in the centre on this big raised platform, overlooking everything is the director, and he stands with his back to us on this raised stage, um, and, you know, he's wearing the typical get-up, the baggy breeches, the soft felt cap, um, and he's wielding, you know, a massive loudspeaker bullhorn, and this is E.R. Richterstein, and this is Dan Aykroyd, and I'm going to call him Dan Aykroyd most of the time. Uh, but E.R. Richterstein, he turns into profile and he puts the loudspeaker to his mouth, barking orders left, right and centre. Pure Aykroyd, you can just imagine, you're like, you know, hey there, and all this. Next to him is his faithful camera operator, Johnny Celluloid, played by David Spade. Um, and we learn that this is the largest production uh, as yet mounted by Flugelman Pictures, moving from low-budget westerns and the like to now something really lavish, something to put his name on the map forever. Richterstein, Aykroyd, says, this baby will make intolerance look like birth of a nation and make birth of a nation look tolerant. If I learned one thing from Griffith, long-form narrative and snapping editing is the future. And if you lose the light, create your own. And then this massively expensive, huge, extensive lighting rig snaps on with a burst flooding the soundstage in light and it hums and crackles with electricity and then joining him on the raised stage is a suit from the studio 
a representative, we learn, of Harry Flugerman himself to keep an eye on things, the cost, etc. And this is Sam, played again by Phil Hartman, who has been promoted a little bit since the last time we saw him. And between him, and I guess Lovitz is like, lost that particular knife fight. Uh, between him and Aykroyd, there is, of course, a lot of snappy dialogue and snappier delivery. Um, we learn that Aykroyd's making this lavish, overly, um, massively, wildly overblown, epic, biblical, pirate, romantic adventure film set in Egypt. And Aykroyd's like, you know, holding his hands up, like looking through like the view screen, being pirates versus pharaohs, the ultimate Hollywood experience. And I am her daddy. And Hartman's like, yeah, and until it makes sense one, I'm the godfather, wet nurse, and honorary chaperone to the midnight ball. And uh, Aykroyd's, trust me, lackey, when Flugelman sees the returns we'll be making from this baby, he'll not only marry me off to his firstborn daughter, but he'll tell his wife to buy a second in case I get the fidgets. And Hartman's, <laughs> oh yeah? Well, now you trust me, E.R., the only thing you'll be married into is the Foreign Legion. This thing doesn't soar. And Aykroyd is a big blowhard, of course, and he tells Hartman to beat it. He's riding high after his previous success and, and he can't do wrong. Um, we see this AD um, is right down in the front, you know, right in the thick of it, having a horrible time with all these millions of horses and extras and just everything is pandemonium and he's covered in dust and he's yelling instructions to this colossal group of extras. In, um, in the center of this soundstage. And I've got this as Gilbert Gottfried. So you can just imagine like, when the whistle blows, go right, go right. <laughs> uh, and Aykroyd's told that he's pushing too hard and too fast, but he ignores all, all this and he, he calls action and everything goes wrong immediately. And in a huge wide shot, uh, and this of course is like under the assumption that the first three Amigos film made all the money and was the Star Wars of that year. So, you know, they threw a lot into this. Um, so in this huge wide shot, the AD then blows this whistle and points to the right and 3000 extras in loincloths carrying sabers run as one to the left. Uh, the horses stampede, the camels bolt, a huge flock of starlings are freed from their aviaries and swarm the set. The lighting rig explodes Horses panic and stampede, and so do the extras, smashing into the side of a mountain range, which is made of plywood, which then teeters and falls over, smashing into the water tank, causing a massive tidal wave to pulverize the set, carrying off another 500 horse-mounted extras. The Sphinx's head falls off, landing on top of a throne room, right on top of the throne and the pharaohs and the frond wavers and the Greek grape feeders and the belly dancers and the fire breathers. Then more water crashes out of the tank and all the boats come spilling out as well and smash into things and all everything is carried away on a crest of a huge wave which then plows into the other fleet of pirate galleons to the shrieks and ahs of the pirates and then a pyramid catches fire. Ackroyd watches it all, his face at first frozen in an explosion of excitement, then morphs into anguish, then pain, then pained anguish, then despair. And Johnny Celluloid looks up from his viewfinder to ER and after a very long beat says, cut. Uh, Ackroyd continues to stare, frozen. Hartman, as smooth as if on ice, slides into shot next to Ackroyd, the smugness oozing out of his pores. And Hartman's like, bad luck, ER, ah, it's all over for you. Why, after today's snafu, you won't be touched by a $3 hooker on coupon day. 
And Ackroyd's, yeah, well, we'll just see about that. ER Richterstein doesn't go down without a fight. And we cut to the plush reception uh, area outside Flugelman's office. It's really nice, really large, nice carpet. We see his name in gold on his huge double doors leading into his office. And the secretary in the reception is typing away behind a huge desk. And from behind the doors, we hear Flugelman losing his shit. Lots of big yells and bellows. And ah, I don't know if you can actually hear it or if it's just like, rah, 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 and another thing. That sort of thing. After a long moment, one of the doors opens a crack and Ackroyd kind of slithers out, looking as if he's just been hit by a family of buses. His clothes are disheveled and his face is that of a man who has just witnessed the horrors of war. He despondently steps into reception and Flugelman like throws open the other door and then continues to sling insult and fire at him, uh, counting all the ways his career, life and very existence is over forever. And the last thing we hear on this is uh, Flugelman saying to his secretary, and get on the front gate, uh, take back his car, take back his plaque, and if this sorry schlack of schloot still has a parking space, I want them to bulldoze it, I want them to crack it and smash it, and I want it filled with sand and sold off as a backlog for dogs, and puts his cigar back in his mouth. And the secretary picks up the phone and says briskly, code 594 on the Rikerson space, so Ackroyd is totally fired by Flugelman with smug Hartman looking on and he's destitute and his reputation is in tattered, he's ruined. He and Johnny Celluloid are then expelled from the studio and the gates slam and a wet horse and dejected camel canter past and walk down the street and Ackroyd sinks to the curb, his head in his hands and Jimmy says, so back to musical theater. And Ackroyd regards him when a bike scoots past ringing its bell and the, uh, the rider throws like a huge stack of newspapers out and it lands right in front of Ackroyd in a muddy puddle, which splashes him. And he's like, bah! Uh, but then he notices the front cover. It's a photo of the three amigos and the headline is, real life zeros con gullible peasants. There is no God, cites witness priest. And Ackroyd then like hits on an idea. He hears of, uh, of the amigos being a huge hit in Mexico. More than that, living legends. And as Johnny then tells him, the legend is like growing and even becoming known north of the border with vague public interest. And also what with Wyatt Earp being like a real person who's like a real like legend, this is starting to grow up. Uh, they're even popping up in dime novels. Um, and you know, Johnny even like goes, hey, and he just happens to have one because it's that type of film. Look, and he shows him this dime novel with this really funny picture, like kind of like a Gone with the Wind front cover, but with Dusty holding some bird, but maybe the bird looks really bored, even though it's like a hand sketch picture. Um, and so further and best of all, as Johnny says, after Harry Flugelman fired the Amigos in a characteristically vindictive move, he sold off all the rights between these men now becoming famous in their own right and the name also being in the public domain, Ackroyd can two birds and one stone it, stage the comeback of the century and rub Flugelman's nose in it, capitalizing on what used to be a Flugelman brand and then to resell it to him at top dollar. And Ackroyd's like, did I say top? I mean to the moon, to the stars, baby. So Ackroyd decides that his comeback will be to stage the ultimate Three Amigos picture. He's making his version of Never Say Never Again. The only problem is, according to Johnny, no one can contact the Amigos. Plus, they are now living legends, and he says there's no way they would want to come back to Hollywood, especially for Flugelman. And Ackroyd's like, you leave that to me. For now, find the crew, steal the camera, and saddle up. 
Looks like we've got one more picture to shoot, Jimmy. And for this one, we're going big. And that's the trailer moment. Um, cut to Mexico. Uh, it's, op it's an opening for a cactus ranch. And the amigos wave to the tiny crowd of villagers watching and they give a little speech between them and they try but fail to cut the ribbon with extremely blunt giant scissors and they're on this like tiny like rickety stage and um in the end dusty tries biting through in gnashing desperation this ribbon um and probably fails and gets all tangled up in it and uh, an attractive lady lucia is watching from the crowd and genuinely applauding the three's antics and seems especially taken with Dusty. Uh, so wrapping up then to the crowd, Lucky's like, oh, don't wait another minute. If you like them green and prickly, boy, do we have a plan for you. The cactus, it's the only family you'll ever know. And he throws a potted cactus to Ned, who catches it between both palms. And here nice. we are, Jimmy. Nice. He pauses for a second, then does a massive, Martin Short scream and trying to open his hands but they're stuck to the cactus between them <laughs> so after the show when the three are congratulating each other and lucky then like winding up his lasso Ned is now sitting and picking multiple spikes from his palms with his teeth isn't that funny and it's both Ned so then uncanny. Lucy, uncanny, I, I love it I love it uh, Lucia approaches Dusty and she flirts a bit, which he, of course, misses and mishandles. And Lucia's, you are very good up there. And Dusty's, who, me? Oh, I, I just do what I can. Making people happy. That's all I care about. That and, you know, living in comfort and getting my full 12 hours a night. And Lucia's, the way you commanded the stage, you had the crowd in the palm of your hand. And he smiles and then sort of slightly unsure and he turns away to check his hand. And Lucia... I wonder, Mr. Dusty, if you would be open to a different form of performance. Oh, sure. Performing is all I do and all I've ever done. Given half a chance, I'd perform all day and all night. Oh, you must have very impressive stamina. And it's sort of uncertain. Well, it was touch and go there for a minute, but a speech coach beat that right out of me. And she offers him a sort of like a strange, a strange smile at her. And then she offers him and the amigos a job. She tells him of her hometown, which is being overridden by this nasty, nasty, terrible man. And Dusty says, uh, well, let's see what we can do about that. And he leads her away to give a proposition to the others. And across the street, sitting outside a bar behind a huge newspaper, a man is watching and the newspaper lowers and we see Aykroyd and he watches him go and smiles, nodding to himself. No one ever really talks about how much Aykroyd is so good at nodding to himself. Right. He does it very well, and he does it now, a bit smug. Dusty tells the other amigos about this job, going to this small town in the middle of nowhere, fighting some bandits, uh, led by this big outlaw, bank robber, train derailer, and all this. Dusty is up for it because he fancies Lucia, and Ned wants to go because, you know, he's a good person. But Lucky isn't so sure, and he says it to himself, that, you know, they've been coasting, and yes, they're stronger, you know, than they used to be, but he doesn't. You know, he doesn't want himself or even the other two to get hurt or killed. But then Ned steps up and he gives a Ned speech. And he's like, um, could it be dangerous? Sure. Could we get hurt or killed? Absolutely. And Dusty's like, you're right. Let's forget the whole thing. And Ned's like, but think of everything we've achieved here. Think of all that we've done. Could the amigos who lived in Beverly Hills have ridden horses like we do? 
Could the old amigos have fought villains, thrown knives, fired guns, and actually hit a target? Could those amigos have faced down evil or shown such courage? And the others start to consider, but then like, they jump because he's like, no, but we are not <laughs> the old amigos, the soft amigos. And Dusty's like examines his belly. We are amigos strong and amigos righteous. And Lucky warming to this, nodding and then be like, yeah. And you know what else? We are amigos strong and we are amigos righteous. And we are indeed amigos in need of expanding their audience, their territory, their profits from kids and men under 30 to women and old folks too. Our audience can only get larger and this is the job to do it. And the three cheer and they do their dun 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 salute. Uh, Lucia doesn't know where to look. Uh, she thanks them and takes a moment to kiss Dusty on the cheek who then watches her go with tenderness, you know, little fingers touching his face when she kissed him. And Lucia goes round the corner and comes face to face with Ackroyd, who's lurking. And he's like, you know, he tells Lucia, good job. And uh, she shows a bit of regret. And he's like, I do not like lying to them, especially this Dusty, he is nice man. And he's like, first off, it's not lying, it's acting. And second of all, if it's fame you're after, well, this is the ticket. So let's punch the card and dance, sister, because E.R. Victor has a movie to shoot. And there's three stars who will give the performance of their lives, whether they know it or not. And that's Brilliant the second acting. trainer. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Ackroyd, therefore, will, um, will film the film with the Amigos none the wiser. So the Amigos are slowly led through the countryside with probably a couple of funny moments by Lucia to the village, but they go the long way around. Um, and of course, the whole town is basically a fake. Uh, upon arriving at this set, the little village in the middle of nowhere, Ackroyd is now busy setting everything up like a military general efficiently, uh, telling the crew where to go and where to set up the hit cameras. And he tells his first AD, who's now like this young teenage goat herd, how to corral the extras. And he tells Johnny Celluloid one thing he needs is a prop. Like, a, you know, he doesn't say MacGuffin, but a MacGuffin, something to further the plot. He wants a necklace or a piece of gold uh, but no such riches exist out here, and his eyes fall on an, an old wood cabinet, which is like stashed at the back of the saloon. And Aqua's like, there, that, whatever, that old thing will do just swell. Bring it forward. This wood cabinet is an old heirloom of our heroine. It means more to her than any brooch or jewelry. It's this which he must guard, and for the heroes to save. And then there's an aside to Johnny. He's like, heck, it's better than Tom Mix's saddle. Do it. Grab it. Let's go. So the Amigos arrive into this town uh, and they are, of course, manipulated by Lucia and then others um, who are you know, into acting, quote unquote, in scenes, remaining none the wiser. So the villagers are all terrible amateur actors. The cameras aren't very well hidden. The cue cards <laughs> should be a dead giveaway. And at one point, <laughs> Dusty says, <laughs> at one point, Dusty says, hey, look at this. This coaster looks exactly like a clapperboard. Uh, but they remain oblivious. Um, Ackroyd stages scenes in the bar and in the cat house with hilarious results. He lures the amigos into areas for sneak attacks and surprise confrontations. Um, they continue to be manipulated by the painfully bad peasants uh, bribed to act. Uh, most of them are readed also from like battered pages are stuck around the room with, the, with their lines or under their hats or even from literal script pages right in front of our heroes. And Lucia continues to do most of the heavy lifting, and she's really cool and good. Um, and she's doing all of this because, as alluded, um, Ackroyd has promised her Hollywood stardom 
if she will do the, all of this, but now she's regretting it. There is in, uh, some action and some horseplay in all senses. A young uh, cub Mexican reporter is on the hand and is writing all this down. Cut back to Hollywood and news of this uh, is all pick is reaching Flugelman and he reads the story from this tiny Mexican newspaper which Hartman has smugly brought him and he throws it aside furious and Flugelman's like, make a dime on property I own, I created, this will not stand. If those three bozos think they can make a monkey out of Harry Flugelman, I'll make them wish their faces were shoes and their feet were their brains. And Hartman looks confused. I want you down there. I want this picture to end. I want Rich to to sob into his just desserts. And I want these three idiots to be buried away forever. So kill the picture, do what you must and destroy what you can. The three amigos must die. And cigar in mouth. And that's the other trailer moment. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> So there you go. By the way, the other film that they're working on is called See You Next Wednesday, because I have to throw in another line. Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> um, in Mexico, Lucia tries to tell Dusty everything, but of course, you know, he completely misunderstands all the time. And then just as she's ready to really force him to see the truth, Ackroyd stages a massive gunfight in the center of town with his main villain turning up. Now, Ackroyd, we find out, has hired this washed-up, uh, drunk ex-star called Randall Calhoun to play El Dente, the teeth, a nasty looking desperado as villain of this elaborate charade. But he hasn't been a star for years and is a mess, but he plays the part and he looks the part very well. Um, I think maybe, you know, he's like a Brit thesp, well past his prime. And, you know, when we see him later, he's pure like, oh, very good, dear boy, as I said to Larry, that's all. Um, but nonetheless, he is convincing as El Dente he is prepped by Ackroyd for the filming of the big showdown to be staged that day. Meanwhile, a stranger has arrived in town. Uh, now, all this could be introduced at different points depending on the final edit, but this new character is very dangerous and a very real bandit called the Bandit. Now, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, we see kind of like a wanted poster outside the post office with the nasty man's face on it. And then in you know, stepping into frame in exactly the same face, is, is the guy for the photo. And it's the famous bank robber who has recently escaped from jail and he's on his way to meet his gang. What he really wants, we find, is a quote-unquote treasure, uh, which he has mentioned, which we very quickly learn is hidden within Ackroyd's MacGuffin, the wood cabinet. And this is a plot point I'm 100% lifting from a few dollars more, a wood cabinet, so that's nice. Uh, he tells the terrified saloon keeper um, that this was, uh, the cabinet was under his care, and now the bandit says, like, you know, he's let it go, and he's gonna shoot the saloon owner when Dusty comes in for a beer, and they have a humorous interaction where the bandit is a hair away from shooting the oblivious and friendly Dusty and the terrified saloon owner. And as he's, you know, got his hand on his trigger, you know, and on the handle of his gun in the holster, and he's cocking back the, the hammer, and he's just about to draw and kill Dusty, and Dusty mentions the cabinet, but he's had to lift it around. He's the only guy big enough to help. And he's like, I don't know, get three Mexicans to do it. I, I keep saying. Um, so he's, he's told that he has been, he has to carry it. Um, doesn't really work. He's been told he has to protect his wood cabinet, um, an heirloom, etc., for the Lucia character. The bandit pretends to be friendly then and, you know, decocks the gun and asks Dusty okay. to take him to it. Like, 
it's in New York. Can I see this cabinet? That sort of thing. Uh, Dusty's like, certainly. So they move to where the cabinet is being kept and the bandit's eyes light up upon seeing it. And he draws his gun and is absolutely about to shoot Dusty in the back when Aykroyd's villain, um, you know, El Diente, the teeth, turns up and starts to make a meal out of a big speech. Now the bandit is really on the back foot and he hangs back, reholstering his gun, watching all of this unfold. And it's pure ham against hams with Lucky and Dusty and Ned now against you know, the teeth, Randall Tycoon or whatever his name is, as the three amigos now have this large confrontation. And they, of course, think it's real. In the teeth's gang, um, in, actua in actuality, they're local shepherds and goat herds. <laughs> they're also spilling into the street, setting the stage for an epic shootout. And squibs go off when no one is shot, you know, really shit. They're just standing there, it's like poof, poof, poof. And, um, and then they don't go off when they are shot, but no <laughs> one notices. And uh, the awful kite, uh, fight choreography as well plays out by pure luck. And during, so there's this big old shootout apparently uh, going on. During all of this, the bandit keeps almost getting his hands on the cabinet, going through this apparent bullets through the room. Uh, but an extra on Amigo or a startled horse keeps stopping him from reaching it. From his vantage point, hidden on a roof, shooting from a, one of the cameras, Aykroyd is beaming, slapping Johnny on the back, saying, sensational. Johnny points out the immoral nature of what they're doing, but Aykroyd just says, never mind schematics, just shoot it. And he's like, yeah, sure, everyone knows you're any schematic. And it's a bit of a cringe. With the gang dead and strewn across the main street, there is then the final confrontation between the three Amigos and the teeth. Uh, the Amigos shoot him, knife him, and sneeze on him. And he staggers back and massively hands it up and falls out the window. I think it's safe to say that Lucille has switched all of their bullets with blanks, but they don't know this. Uh, so the bandit is very impressed by the skill shown and this huge hammy death as well was impressed him. And he fell out the window, so it's a good stunt. So bandit is like, fuck, you know, I better hang back and kill these amigos when they're alone because they're, they're too hardcore for me. And the Amigos, of course, think that they've saved the town from the you know, from this big raid and are victorious and loving it. And Aykroyd has it all in the can. In the village now, it's guts the evening and it's celebrations. And Dusty has a tender moment with Lucia and she starts to cry, the guilt getting to her. And just before they kiss, Lucia's like, you know, she breaks away. She's like, if I am to make love to you or to any man, I will make love for passion and not dirty money and sleazy half-promises of corrupt fame. And Dusty's like, are you sure? Because that's how I got into show business in the first place. <laughs> and then she bursts into tears and she runs off and Dusty's left there. He's like, to himself, usually they wait till after before they cry. Uh, Lucky and Ned are having a good time, uh, but a small plane buzzes overhead and lands right in front of them. And the door opens and fucking Hartman steps out and he lays down the law, and Aykroyd is busted, and this charade is over. And the Amigos are still really slow on the uptake, and Lucky's like, hey, wait a minute, aren't you one of Flugelman's lackeys? Lucky, am I? When I'm holding the great Amigos by their enchiladas, you never knew an enemy as cold as me, nor an adversary as ruthless or heartless. If there's one thought you bozos take to hell, let it be this. Sam Ingerbrook stands laughing over your graves forever. And Dusty, memory jogged. Yeah, it's Sam. How are things? And Ned, 
then slowly puts it together and he says, now wait just one minute, Sam's here and ER, and you know, afterwards being exposed and he's standing there in front of them. And then Ned's like, you know, really, really getting it to you, know, thinking, real thinking face, like mm, revelation face. And while I was grabbing a samosa from the service table by the trailers this morning, Jimmy, he's the grip, was telling me about trying to catch the sun to make his shots before losing continuity. And he was loading the camera at the time. So I glanced at the script pages he had laid out on the table and I started to think, who would serve samosas before noon? Who else but Hollywood? And the others are like, oh, and they're very impressed by his detective skills. And Dusty looks to Lucia, he's like, is this true? It was all fake. And Lucia's, Dusty, I wanted to tell you, but Dusty's having none of it. And maybe he says something slightly cold and she runs away and sobs. Um, she goes to her room and falls on the bed weeping. And then a figure steps out of the shadows and we hear a gun click and she sits bolt upright and we see the bandit. And the bandit's like, let's go, senorita. And the bandit takes the cabinet and takes Lucia and they ride off into the desert and the Amigos find out about this and Aykroyd's uh, like, I'm heartbroken naturally, but the movie shut down. I just don't see the use of getting all hopped up by this. And Lucky's, oh yeah, well, how's your hopping now, Richter Steen? And he shoots him in the foot and Aykroyd's all hopping about. And then the Amigos are like, uh, they ride off after the bandit and deep into the desert, the bandit and Lucia ride into a creepy valley where Lucia uh, is saying, you idiot, you know, this is the place of ghosts and whispers. No one dare ride here. And the bandit's like, no one but us, eh, senorita? And he tells, uh, she tells of the forgotten ghost tribe of Indians who have been forced progressively south as the old west was slowly disappearing. And the bandit cackles and they see the horses dust trails coming up behind them and they see that the amigos are riding and catching up so the bandit takes um, Lucia and they take refuge in a cave and uh, hiding within watching the amigos ride closer the bandit lifts off his rifle from his shoulder and you know cocks it and pulls it back and he's grinning and he, you know, he lines up the sight and then Lucia just reaches out and definitely just snatches the rifle from his hand and then the bandit yells and spins and as, she, as he spins, she just smoothly lifts the gun up from his holster and points it at the bandit. And he's flabbergasted, but then he grins. And he's like, this is very, very good, senorita, but I wonder if you have what it takes to kill a man. Something, this is easy, but you will be surprised, I think. And Lucia's like, I've had enough surprises, bandit. And then out of the darkness around them, 20, 30, 50 painted faces emerge and the lost ghost of tribe of Indians come out and they just silently snatch the bandit and Lucia. And it's a real bone tomahawk wannabe. Um, and the really Amigos follow them. Yeah, like, yeah, like, moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, the Amigos follow the trail and they two enter the caves. It is deep and dark and has mystical elements. And this is my little section you know, in the film, which is like the weird bubble in the center of the first film. Um, weird shit happens. One of the one of the things is they're in this huge cavern and they call out and their echoes come back in Chinese. Uh, deeper inside, the amigos find like a still pool of water 
and uh, legend has it that whomever looks into the water will see their true self reflected back. And Ned looks and, he's, and his reflection is like a pure hero, like lantern jaw and handsome and heroic. And Ned's like, hmm, like happily. <laughs> and then Lucky looks and he looks into the reflection and he sees like this hideous, shriveled, impossibly ugly crone, like the worst. And he's like, gah! And then Dusty looks and he sees exactly his own reflection and he just sort of checks his teeth. And I say this, you may say that this is because Dusty is so shallow that he has no real self. But I would also argue that Dusty is perhaps what we should all aspire to be because he is exactly what he appears to be. And maybe that makes him the most glorious hero of them all. Wow. <laughs> so there you are. Um, the Amigos now sneak into a large cavern where they find the forgotten ghost tribe, about 50 or 60, now surrounding the bandit and Lucia, who are huddled in the center. And it looks like the Indians, are, and I'm calling them Indians, but I'm sorry, it's just part of the vernacular. It looks like they're preparing a large fire. And the bandit's like, if you want to burn me up, so be it. And if you want to burn the girl, better yet. But please, my friends, do not burn this fine wooden cabinet, for inside is my greatest treasure. But he's ignored, and the amigos hatch a plan. They sneak around, so between the three of them, they're sort of surrounding the group, and then they, they call out and pretend to be spirits, using the Chinese echo to freak out the tribe. And then the three launch into a song and dance routine, and sort of holds its audience in awe. And during this, the bandit escapes, making Lucia carry this massive cabinet. And as the song ends in a big finish, Dusty sees Bandit and Lucia, you know, she's like staggering under the weight of this cumbersome cabinet. And Dusty's like, hey! And the Amigos chase the Bandit and the tribe take a moment and then start to make their own echoey noises, much amused, like this is the first time they've ever realized there's an echo. And then they start to recreate the Amigos song in their own language, working some rudimentary dance steps. And we cut and the Bandit and Lucia and the cabinet uh, and then the Amigos emerge from another cave entrance high up now on a plateau overlooking everything. And taking cover behind some rocks about 20 or 30 meters apart, the bandits and the Amigos have a brief shootout. Lucky's gun then clicks empty, then Ned's, and the bandit grins and aims and fires, but he too is out of bullets. And he grabs his massive knife from his boot and he holds it to Lucia's throat. And he reaches into his bag and he pulls out a stick of dynamite, grinning all the more. And Dusty looks and he has one bullet left. And he looks to this and then to Lucia and then to the bandit and then to the others. And then at a little chipmunk, which is sitting on a rock next to him. And Dusty is immediately <laughs> entranced and delighted. He's like, hey there, little guy. And then Lucky hissing is like, Dusty. And Dusty is snapped out of it. And he looks over to where the bandit is hiding behind Lucia. And Dusty loads his one bullet and he clicks the gun shut. And the bandit then lights the dynamite from his cigar and Dusty cocks back the hammer and then takes careful aim. And then the bandit throws the dynamite at the Amigos. And then the chipmunk makes a little sneezy noise. And Dusty looks at it and delighted says, oh, and still looking at the chipmunk, he accidentally fires the gun and it hits the dynamite in midair that spins off and lands under the cabinet. And the bandits, no, and the Amigos duck and Lucia breaks free and dives behind a rock just as the cabinet explodes and the bandit is thrown back and he staggers to his feet. Lucia takes his knife and punches him in the face, knocking him down again. And then the chipmunk runs off down a hole. Dusty 
and Lucia run to each other and they embrace passionately and then they kiss even more passionately. Lucky has done uh, has gone particularly deaf due to the explosion as a little what type moment and Ned covers the bandit with a small rock um, and the bandit is now like crawled into the wreckage of the cabinet sobbing among the flaming debris and Lucky is like Oh, this for nothing more than embers. I hope you're a happy bandit. Uh, but Ned then sees something in the wreckage and pulls it out and it's hot. So he's like, ah, ooh, ah, and it's like a small metal tube and he unscrews it and, and taps it and tips it and a rolled up parchment falls out and bandit sees and he's like, it's safe, it's safe. Oh, thank you, brave amigo, it's safe. And Dusty and Lucia were still in his arms. He's looking, he's like, what is it? And the bandit, the greatest treasure I will ever have. And Ned you know, unfolds it, or he unrolls it. And he's like, it looks like a script. And bandit, not just script, it's my masterpiece. And Lucky, let me take a look at that. And here's another massive similarity, Jimmy, which I bloody love. So he takes it from Ned and Lucky reading says, interior, Madame Rouge's Parisian boudoir. Twilight. We pushed in on Redgrave, a suave, handsome Mexican man with fire in his eyes and flames in his loins. And he looks up. He's like, "Hey, this is pretty good." <laughs> and Bandit is like, um, "Bandit, I I wrote it in prison, but I knew the guards would claim it for themselves, so I hid it in the cabinet and have only been counting the days to retrieve it, so that I may once again bask in its beauty." And Ned comes in here and takes it back and has a read. And he's sort of scanning, reading quickly, almost under his breath. Bottomless desire, countless encounters, the agonizing pleasure of hearts in twain. Say, this is good. And Lucky's mm -hmm. like, hey, bandit, this doesn't have room for more than one lead, does it? And Ned's been like, three more leads? And the bandit stares, and then slowly he smiles. Then the smile grows and his eyes become alive and he starts to laugh. Then Lucky starts to laugh. Then Ned, then Lucia and Dusty looks from one to the other, not sure what's going on, looking a bit confused. We cut then to the helicopter shot of the group standing on the plateau, you know, and they're laughing and laughing and laughing. We cut and it's Flugelman's plush office and he's shouting at some Ponzi types in standing in front of him in terror, who we immediately learn are writers. And Flugelman's like, you call this writing? I could blow my nose, smear it across a dirty window and still be left with something more compelling. Where's the soul? Where's the excitement? Where's the passion? You bums couldn't write your own obituaries. Bringing swirl like this to Harry Flugelman's office. What? You think just anyone can waltz in here? And the double doors burst open and the three amigos stride in, hands on hips. And Flugelman stares and his cigar falls out of his mouth. And Flugelman's like, what? Where? Who? And then Lucky interrupts, who? Let me help you with that, Flugelman. The answer's us. And then bursting into the office around them comes the bandit on his horse uh, and, and loads of his men riding around. And then the forgotten ghost tribe burst in and the whole room is instantly filled with insanity. And the secretary screams and the writers faint and Flugelman gawps in the center of it all. And Flugelman's like, what the hell is this? And Lucky's like, it's the future, Flugerman, yours and ours. And Ned throws the rolled up parchment of script down in front of Flugerman and he says, read it and weep. And Dusty, but don't take too long, our horses are double parked. And cut finally to another huge soundstage, again presided over by Ackroyd and Johnny Sellerite on the camera. 
and Hartman and Flugerman stand next to them, overseeing the action below. And we see, like before, but now it's a mock-up of the Eiffel Tower, a bordello, some can-can dancers, and the forgotten ghost tribe are all dancing in a line, throwing up their legs with flourish. The bandit, his cowboys, the federales, who apparently turned up earlier and they actually arrested Randall Tycoon because they thought it was uh, the actual bandit. They all ride in and whoop and dance and sing. And then the amigos enter and right center stage. And then we see through Johnny's camera, the, the heroes step up and into frame. Uh, and they look around at the hundreds of extras, the Indians, the cowboys, and Ackroyd shouting from the platform through his bullhorn, ready guys? And Lucky looks to Dusty, he looks at Ned and they all smile. And Lucky shouting up to Ackroyd, ready when you are, ER? And then to the others, amigos? And all three of them, let's ride! And they do the salute and they jump on their horses and they ride with an epic pullback. And then we have, um, as we pull back, end narration comes back in by Mitchum or Peck, again accompanied by news and film stock, and some of it's real and some of it's been really doctored appallingly. And it says, and from then, not only Hollywood history, but the history of the entire globe had begun to be written. We all know the rest. Strides forward in technique, craft, and execution was achieved with the landscape of film reformed forever. And we see like at the three in their pure Three Amigos get up, but they're like being really badly forest gumped into like classic films. And so we <laughs> see them surrounded by gangsters in Scarface. And then we see them like with Boris Karloff in Frankenstein. And they're all three playing the doctor in the lab, pulling the switch in the Amigo get up. And then um, the narration continues. First in astounding monochrome, then into glorious technicolor. And we see the Wizard of Oz, and we see them as the Scarecrow, Tin Man and Lion on the set and everything. And again, with a hat still on and all of that, but on top of everything. And then Dorothy has her back to us and she turns around and it's revealed that it's the cabinet bandit mm -hmm. and he's got little pigtails. Mm -hmm. And then the winged monkeys come in and they're played by the ghost tribe. And then we see Gone with the Wind and we see all three of the heroes carrying Scarlet up the stairs and they're all fighting, like slapping hands over, get, you know, over who gets the halter properly. <laughs> and then we see the Ten Commandments with the three as bearded Moseses uh, parting the Red Sea. And the narration continues. Soon, not even the tapestry of the modern age of film was enough for these pioneers. And with their achievements, there came success. And we see various you know, newsreel clips of them at the Oscars, and then all three winning for best film, best director, best actors and actresses. And then we see them at parties with champagne, and then the voice of a scandal. And we see like tabloid photos of them, you know, trying to block the camera, holding up their hand, like, hey, lit up by the flash, leaving a club with Jane Mansfield. But it's all three of them, just with Jane Mansfield. And of course, this was only the beginning of their climb. And we see them getting sworn in as president and with their hands up on the Bible in the Oval Office. And then we see them winning the Nobel Peace Prize, still with Jane Mansfield, who's no idea what's going on. And then on the moon, and we see the astronauts on the lunar surface, and next to them, the, the, the flag, and then the hats still on the space helmets. These amigos lived a life no one could have predicted, nor ever hoped to better. They remain an example of how to live, how to win, and how to be the best we could ever hope to be. They were the pinnacle of human endeavor, achievement, and glory. 
all this times three. And then we have dun 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 dun, and the credits come up, and, and that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> and like I say, totally needless, could easily be cutting them for. And oh, I've got tagline. Um, this doesn't make a lick of sense, but heroes, legends, ballet parkers. And then another one uh, heroes whenever this brave, legends whenever this dumb. Slightly generic, but I think it gets the point across. Nice, Sheppy. Fucking hell, man. My God. That <laughs> hit all the marks. He had that little weirdness in the cave. He had the, the, the way they interact. Perfect. All, so many little nuances that you got right there. Just the reactions, the little things they'd say, the way they interact. Like, just the... the oh, mate, it's just, it's just another perfect one, Shep. So I don't even know where the... It was is. a joy. It was an absolute joy. Um, it was very, very nice. And like I say, it, the, out, the original concept so much bigger. I really scaled it down. <laughs> good thing about that. So, yeah, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> I I almost, and I say this with the highest compliment, like the whole flip, the perfect flip or the conceit of the original with them not knowing they're in a movie is, um, is so perfect. I, and I don't mean this as a criticism at all. I just feel like I've seen it before in a good way. Like it's like it's mm. it's like I mean it's happened. kind of Bowfinger happened, sort of. Like, yeah, but I, lo- I love elements. it. I it was great, man. That was nice. It's a great idea. Well, thanks. Well, you know, because you've got like basically the first film is the seventh as well, the, the Magnificent Seven, and so, and I I also considered sort of taking them to Monument Valley, and they discover like this perfect filming location for Westerns, like 20 years before John Ford. There's going to be a whole thing there. But just putting them in different locations, it's just, that's nice. And just having them and have, it was, it was gorgeous. It was, a, it was wonderful. So I'm so glad you, you chose it, Jimmy. So well, thank Jeff, you. And you gave thank us all you, three beats every time perfectly as well as to what those characters would do, you know. Not least Chevy picking his teeth when he sees himself in the water. <laughs> Mate, that's lovely. It's going to be a great, Re listed as well, man. So thanks, Sheps. God bless you. Right. Well then. Yes. Order of business, sir. What have we got? Well, Jimmy, this one I've just really just gone off in a very different direction. This is a first for us, um, pretty much. It's it's, it's similar um, to something we've done in some ways, but it's certainly the um, a sequel to the oldest film that we've ever touched upon. I believe the most recent um, we did Hitchcock. And there was North by Northwest, which I think was 58 or 59, I'm saying. Um, well, this, my friend, is 1942, uh, a classic. Um, there was a sequel lined up for it, which never happened. I'm talking Casablanca, Jimmy. I thought you were going to go there as soon as you said it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's, 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 rock, let's rock the Casablanca. Holy moly, Sheps. Well, the sky's the limit, I say. Uh, I say, let's, let's just have some fun because it's random and, you know, so, so lovely. Lovely, 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 Jimmy. Which means how on earth do we sign out of this? Do we say, hapa, hapa, hapa? Because that, by the way, is the character Steve Martin plays in The Man With Two Brains. So that's a nice little Steve Martin Easter egg that he himself laid. That's but we still fun. need a silent. Yeah, we do. Need I, <laughs> I didn't even know that. I hadn't even put that together. So it's just made me really happy. It's so good stuff. I'm it's good stuff. This podcast. 
Yeah, um, oh, Sheps, I don't know. I didn't even know the Three Amigos speech off by heart. It was wherever there is trouble. I couldn't even recite that. Wherever there is poorly made podcasts will be there. Wherever there is a lack of sound quality and endless, endless meandering, we're your guys. <laughs> da, 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 the two bozos. Amigos and up.